Welcome to the Mega Blast Podcast. I'm your host, Jason McDonald. My goal is to get to the truth through conversation. The Mega Blast Podcast is produced by Arts and Opinion, an online journal housed at the Archives of Canada. Visit us at artsandopinion.com. I hope you enjoy today's guest. So, welcome, Thierry. Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming on my podcast, first of all. Hey, my pleasure. Yeah. I'm here with my friend Thierry Alexandre Zambotaz. Yeah. Um, uh, and the objective of this podcast is to go through what is music that we love and why it's good and do, um, you know, I wrote down here pop music, but we, during our pre-discussion, it sounded like you're not such a fan or well we can we can we can talk about the definition of pop and and uh, and what it means to me also and what it means in general to you also and we'll see what we can fit in there well, why don't we just stick on that for a minute i mean what if you had to give a working definition of pop music what would it be what would you well po popular popular and far-reaching i don't know if reach it reaches a lot of people it so there would have to be it would have to sell a certain number so any record that sells over a certain amount could be considered popular well, music I don't, i'm not sure if you music. can talk about sales yeah. now rather than reach meaning people are listening to it you know hits right uh the number of uh the number of songs that have been, that have been streamed things like that people talking about it i, I think that's I think that's how they do, yeah. like when they talk about the top selling artists mm -hmm. now, they include streams and, and YouTube yeah. listens and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and some of them are astonishing. Like when you go on YouTube and you, you, know, you listen to Drake or something, it's like, yeah. you know, six billion, like, mm -hmm. you know, like many people as there are in the world. Like I, I guess people listen to it multiple times. Obviously, it's not like every human listened to it once, right? You know, pop music can also, uh, can also be something that's, accessible right and you could see right. it that way as well yeah. accessible meaning popular or that could be popular and um so because an artist like drake i mean he's got a machine behind him and some people yeah. make pop music but they don't have that machine behind them and they're popular in their little circle right and it could be a very nice song to listen to and probably the world might have an interest in that song but they'll never it'll never yeah. go you yeah. know through all that it, it, it raises, you're raising so many questions about why, you know, why did the Rolling Stones and why does, why do they become these megastars? Mm -hmm. And then there's some other guy who's probably just as good, yeah. right? Doesn't make it. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's very obscure. It's not clear what those ingredients are. Do you have a oh, theory yeah. or I don't know? I don't know. It's yeah. like, I've, I've been asking myself the same question. I, I have a CD somewhere, which is, uh, it's all the music that has inspired or that was playing at the uh, at the same time as the who right okay, yeah. I, I don't know it's somewhere there i can't really name artists there on that cd but um and i have the same reflection about the stones the beatles and a band called the pretty things and once and actually i discovered the pretty things uh, I, you know you never know music enough right so i discovered them a week ago is this Which a is band, a band in the, the 60s? 60s. Okay. Oh, yeah, it's British. It's contemporary. Br British. Uh, is it? Yeah. yeah, I think so. Right. Um, and uh, I was listening to this in the shop, and, and it sounded like the Beatle, but it was way harsher. It, it had like a fuzz on the guitar and constant fuzz, and, and, but harmonies in the voices. So it's like the who, nah, mm. 
the stones no so i i go i, I go there and I ask it's, oh it's the pretty things pretty things it's like, yeah. sounds pretty good good name but why did the pretty things not make it yeah not make it yeah, and why right. the stones and the beatles and the who I, I have no idea okay because the pretty things probably musically they're probably you know it's hard to compare how good they are but i mean if you look at the who they're fantastic musically and then you can go see a band in a bar that may be just as good i mean they, yeah. you know they practice just as much like just their yeah. musicality could be just as good they, right? I, yeah. I have a feeling that so. there was there, there there were people behind these bands that knew how to market these bands yeah you know yeah, and, and at one point the stones decided to become the bad the boys rock and roll yeah. the who yeah. uh, they were like I don't know. I, I, they were the British. They they played up the British yeah. thing. They used the Union Jack mm -hmm. and all of their marketing and all that stuff. And the Beatles, they were yeah. all proper, nice guys. Like, they were the nice kids. Until they started taking acid. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's true. I mean, the Stones, right from the start, were marketed by Andrew Lug Oldham yep. as the anti-Beatles. I mean, they were like, yes. the Beatles were the nice, as you said, you know, and the Stones were kind of the raunchy, tougher kids that you, you don't want your daughters to go out with kind of thing. Not at yeah. the beginning, because they were yeah. all wearing, wearing right, nice yeah. little shirts. Yeah. And then at one point, they said, well, why are we going to do the same thing? We're just going to be the bad guy. We're going to be the uh, antithesis right. of yeah. what the Beatles are. Yeah. And uh, It and seemed to work, too. Yeah. I also have a, just to linger a little bit on that, I have a theory that the the Beatles, what they did, they had a kind of a more typical rock and roll trajectory where they kind of exploded into fame and they were famous for, you know, a certain number of years and then they kind of went supernova mm -hmm. and there's a body of work associated from that era. And then yeah. the stuff they did independently was kind of, you know, not, uh, yeah, you know, like John Lennon stuff is known, but it's nothing like the Beatles, but the mm -hmm. Rolling Stones kind of had a slower uptake. It, it took them a few years. Like they were touring in the US and in other places when they were not, not that well known in, in 1965 satisfaction, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. But there was a period of three years where they were kind of semi-known. So my theory is that the Beatles went to Germany and they played these ridiculous shifts in Hamburg and they got super, super tight. So they were ready to go earlier on. And the Rolling Stones had to go through that period to get tight until, yeah, I think so. you know, and they weren't even writing songs, no, right? They I think they had covers. to be shoved into a room or something, they, right? It's, and it's funny <laughs> because when they, when they went to the States, they were basically playing the old blues hits back yeah, exactly. to the yeah. public that was not listening yeah. to it because it was black music. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it, and, but suddenly white guys were playing it. And then, anyway, yeah. This this touches on, on a really interesting part about the, there's a racial thing where at that time there was a segregated system of music, right? Where the... Um, uh the the you know there was the the, the what's called race records right so you had yeah. these motown artists and they and then then you had i mean the rolling stones were actually doing it in a kind of uh, laudatory kind of like they were they were like we love these guys so we want to copy them and we want to go meet them and they were going to the studio in chicago mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff you know playing mm -hmm. And then there were then there were the other examples like you know you hear like you know Pat Boone or something where they would just take a song you know that was a big hit in in the among the race records and they'd record it and nobody would know it was just like see that was so it gets into a question of what is cultural appropriation so you oh, could well, say you know it's the Rolling Stones in my view because they admired these people and they always and even to this day you know Mick Jagger I know you know this uh, you know the the song. Um, 
Honey Bee, you know, Sting mm-hmm. Me. What's the name of that one? Well, I don't know. Uh, she, she's a king bee. I'm a okay. king bee or whatever. And it's originally by this guy called Slim Harpo. Mm-hmm. So me and my dad were up drinking one night. And we were like, who's Slim Harpo? So we <laughs> got on a rabbit hole and started listening to Slim Harpo. And there was a quote by Mick Jagger. It was like, why would anybody want to listen to the version by the Rolling Stones when they can go listen to Slim Harpo's version? Yeah. <laughs> Which is to say, we recognize these guys are better than us mm-hmm. in some senses, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm not sure Pat Boone and them, they're kind of, I'm not sure how much they really cared about those artists they were copying, if they really even knew. I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah. Like, something, it's, it's just, it's, I haven't really looked into that. I mean, I'm listening to, I don't even, I don't even listen to Pat Boone. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sticking to my classics there. And I, <laughs> I you know, I've, yeah. I, I know some people that could go way deeper than that and into the history of rock and roll and the links. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, it's a strange period. Going back to the Stones, I think that they they weren't even aware. If they were, it wasn't ingrained in them that there was a racial divide. I think because they were British, they right? Yes, yeah, exactly. they came from the outside. They, they didn't yeah. care about that, and they were so young, and they went to him to this country where there was this sort of segregation. I think system. they realized that there, they, yeah. they knew. It's kind of a theoretical. Yeah. That's knowledge. an interesting. And That's then, a, yeah. and then it becomes a reality when you see it, when you mm-hmm. see policemen acting with black people and stuff. I think that's what happened, and they realized that's interesting. That, yeah. that this is, and and but you know because they were always very faithful to to the original artists. They they made a point of inviting them on stage. Absolutely. You know, the latest tours they had the big names. Buddy Guy was playing with them, and big really? John Lee Hooker. Recently, yeah. like uh, well, I think well, it's on the Scorsese yeah. film that was right. uh, shot. You know, sort of. Clinton was in the there and it was right. a little a small room and Scorsese was filming that concert but, nice. but I think Buddy Guy was there and a couple of other artists like that is, is that the one with the band is that the one that he did about the band uh, no, no 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 that's, that's really, a different that's a Stones Scorsese. concert that's okay. Scorsese Stones shot concert. a Stones okay. concert okay. in the wow. early 2000 interesting yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. so Scorsese's done a couple of things with, oh he's with, done he's done yeah. a whole series on the blues as well interesting yeah and the Stones and, uh, and yeah oh yeah that. that's that's a that's a great uh, you know Martin Scorsese has long used music in his mm-hmm. films in mm-hmm. a really mm-hmm. powerful way I think he pays a Good, nice tributes to all these bands and the music that he he, he often uses. yeah David Chase too when he did um, the Sopranos too would sort of carefully pick and it was often sort of an obscure it was often not the big Rolling Stones tune or whatever they take one that nobody knows and you know kind of all right okay um, so what what I wanted to do was just to to do like an introduction but why don't you talk about yourself a little bit and how you got into music and because you are a musician right yeah. you're a bass player not, so. not not a professional musician but I, I Music has always been part a very of my good life, one, I must know? say. Uh, no, I, 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 that's my view. So. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're but just talk about you know your instrument and how you got into it and all that kind well, of stuff. I, uh, well, I I got into music when I was a kid. Basically, in my family, if, if you didn't play music or practice an instrument, you were it was there was you were lacking something, right? So uh, when I was five or six, I started with the violin. Then I jumped to piano, and then. Uh, wow. And until a certain age where I could decide by myself, and then I picked a guitar, and that's when I became became lazy and stopped learning and started playing what I wanted. But anyway, to make a long story short, that's how I, I really got. So into it was music. ingrained in your family. Yeah, it was a, it was important right. to learn or at least to master to a certain level an instrument. Whatever Did your it was. father play? My Did father play? played the violin, but he was not. I was he was good. He was playing Hungarian melodies. He's my my, He's my dad's Hungarian. Yeah. You know? yeah. And he we got a violin from my grand 
grandfather who brought it from Hungary. Nice. Uh, a uh, reproduction of a uh, of a Stradivarius, not wow. a, not an original wow. one, but a copy. Luthier made one based on the plans, right? So my father would play that, and he would play Hungarian melodies, and you know it was there. You know it was in the family, and he listened to a lot of classical music. Mm -hmm. But my parents were from another era. They were from the uh, uh, post-war, not the baby boomers, before that. Pre-boomer. Yeah, right. kind of pre-boomer. Yeah. So they were listening to a lot of chansons, and, you know, uh, Aznavour and here, Leclerc and all these things. And my dad was really into classical music. But uh, this is the start. But at one point, you start realizing or kind of rebelling against that. That's mm -hmm. my fair my parents' music. So I, you start yeah. exploring, and then your friends or your cousins. I remember my cousin, which he was four years older than me, and we were listening to some music. And I don't remember if I really liked it or not, but I said, can I borrow your LP? Do you remember what it was? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was yeah. King Crimson's okay, uh, nice. Discipline, which is 1980, 81, or something like that. It's, mm. it's like the fourth generation of King Crimson with uh, Adrian Ballou and right. Bill Bruford right. and... Tony Levin and of course Fripp, but basically he said he gave it to me. He says yes, but be careful. You know, it's like and you're looking at your your cousin, his older cousin, and so beat the crap out of the crap out of me. So basically, I put I put the record on the on a turntable and I put a cassette and then you know we did tapes at that time yeah, and I, yeah. I recorded and then I put it put the record back in the sleeve and I just left gave it, it there to just yeah. to make sure there was no scratch on it. And I was listening to that tape constantly and I and. So that was a formative piece of music for you. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, actually, uh, uh, can you think of any other things that really, sort of like, as you said, made this transition out of your family into, wow, that's the kind of music I want to listen well, to, you know? There's, right. Okay, there's the first, the first time I recorded music on a tape was, it was completely random. I was listening to a radio station and I had this little recorder that I would put right by the yeah. radio and I would I remember doing record that. songs. Yeah. And then I would listen to the tape and of course, everything was good because everything was different. But the the moment I started to be be a little bit more selective about music is when I I, I purchased my first record of with my own money, which was in uh, I guess I was twelve, right? So I buy this compilation, you know, KTEL. Remember KTEL? Oh yeah, yeah. And and <laughs> it was a high voltage. And I, I actually high volt, I, ACDC. I, no, no, high voltage. The the name of the compilation was was high, high voltage. Okay. And you had on this record, you have the Titus High Blondie. You had Don't nice. Stand So Close to Me, The Police. You had uh, you had some Island Parson Project. You had uh, Pat Benatar hit me with That's, your best shot. Yeah. You had you, you had, you had yeah. a no the hits Blondie, of, hits of the day right? right hits of the day. Yeah. It's, it's basically it was the greatest hits of of charts charts greatest. Hits, so right? so the, yeah the Billboard chart or whatever. And so they there just were put songs I together. didn't like yeah. and songs I liked. You know I I wasn't what what's this Canadian singer. Uh, Older and Murray, Anne Murray. Gosh, yeah. So, so there was a there was a like song every Anne single Murray. CBC special in the nineteen eighties <laughs> had Anne Murray, right? Well, of course, that wasn't <laughs> wasn't really my sound, but yeah. But that's the first. But the I don't think it's one, anyone's sound, you know. to be honest with you, <laughs> except the CBC executives. I mean, who listens? It's, honestly, I've never met anyone who actually. I love Anne Murray. I mean, have you? I you know, I've never. You know, I don't, I, know. I, I don't think she's big here anyway. You know, she's not big anywhere. I mean, my dad is from you know music guy from Ontario. The only people, the only good thing I ever heard about Anne Murray was my <laughs> very good friend growing up, John Rallier, mm -hmm. became a, an opera singer, quite a well-known one, and his parents were opera singers, and so they knew how to sing, and they said she has a good, well-trained.
singing voice. Uh-huh. That she's actually a good oh, musician. She does, she does yeah, you know, voice. and that's and that's you could say, well, that's good praise. Except that's not somebody going. I love that no. sound. No. You know what I mean? She, it's, no, but, but yeah. you know, I could I could say that from Celine Dion. I hate her right, songs, exactly. But I right. can appreciate her her musicality, right? Her, her talent and her yeah. and and the work right. that is behind doing this and performing like she does, right? Yeah. So I understand. Yeah. Anne Marie has a great voice for sure. I don't like the songs. That's it. But so what did touch you on that K-Tel? Did the Blondie touch you? Like, what, what, uh, Do you remember any particular songs? Like, that's great. I love this one. Uh, the you Police. Know? The Police, yeah. 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 Oh, Don't yeah, stand so was, close uh, to me. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, the, the opening of that album was uh, was uh, Echo Beach. Oh, yeah. Uh, what's yeah. the band? Far Away in Time. Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Martin the Muffins. Martin the Muffins, yeah. right. So yeah. there, there was a sound to it and a certain rhythm that got me, you know, into, oh, wow, I'm listening to... to, to Rock music, popular music. And I'm 12 years old, and <laughs> and I remember singing uh, uh, cars from Gary Newman coming oh, out of the school man. with a friend. We were like singing yeah. cars. I love Gary right? Newman, man. He's and, great. Yeah. <laughs> but the first, really, the first LP that 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 I bought from an artist was Tattoo You from the Rolling Stones. Oh, interesting. And that's a great record. That's one of my favorites. It's uh, a great record. Yeah. But it was that opened the door. That was my introduction to the Stones. And That's it's funny wow. because I'm I'm introduced That's... to the Stones in the oh, I'm 12 years old when it comes out, right? So I buy it, and I remember buying it at La Baie at uh, what's the uh, Galerie d'Anjou, okay, Galerie d'Anjou, which is east, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's really interesting because that record is perhaps one of their most you know greatest records musically. It has Mick Mick what's his name Mick Taylor. The, no, it's not. No, he's not there anymore. He is Mick because Taylor. yeah, the guitarist because it was a, it's on some of them. If you look at the because I've studied that out there, so it has him because it was a whole bunch of songs they had kind of laying I, around, it, it and so it does they, have Mick Taylor on some of the tracks. They were, Slave. For example, yeah. I think has Mick Taylor doing solos, and it has Sonny Rollins, like the great, yeah, yeah. you know, saxophone yeah, yeah. jazz yeah. saxophones playing on yeah. there. It has, you know, it's it's a very very musical record. That you know? that it's era very... of the Stones was funny because the, they they uh, they went into the studio in seventy five seventy six and they recorded a whole bunch of songs, and they made uh, Black and Blue. They made uh, some girls. Some girls. Yeah. Then they made uh, she's uh, she's so called uh, emotional rescue. Emotional rescue. And yeah. then they came up with, uh, with tattoo you. Tattoo you. But yeah. some of the songs on tattoo you were made in seventy five and seventy six. Mm-hmm. Start me up was a reggae song. Yeah. Right? So right, I, yeah. I can understand that. I don't. I. I've, I've it was been, stuff they had later credits on, because right. I think that the Stones had this habit of not crediting the people for. Unless it was really obvious, yeah. really, they were not crediting the proper people. You know, yeah. like uh, Mick Taylor, uh, he's always credited as being the solo guitar, right? But come on, uh, Time Waits for No One is not a Keith yeah. Richards song. Okay. Well, but the we, reason he left the Rolling Stones, he felt he should have uh, been given a writing credit, which he probably did yeah, deserve yeah. one. This and the uh, party lifestyle. I want to come back to that later, actually, because yeah. that's a really good question about uh, writing of songs. Mm-hmm. But, but it's a very, very musical Stones mm-hmm. album. It's not, you know... It's very much like, I mean, you know, I guess they're all musical in some sense, but to have Sonny Rollins, I mean, Sonny Rollins oh, yeah, is a real the, jazz musician, absolutely. right? He's, a, he's not. But a, look, yeah. look who's their bass player now. Darryl, yeah, Daryl Jones. So he's playing, yeah. he played with Miles Davis. So yeah. they uh, they know how to get the best musicians. Yeah. At, at, at a certain area, there was Max Romeo and there was like, uh, Bob, what was his name? Bobby Keys, but there's a... a Bobby Keys, the sax player. Yeah, and there was like a, a keyboard yeah. player that plays in that. Played Max in the Romeo, 70s. the Jamaican? Yeah. Is he Jamaican? A reggae artist. I think so, yeah. He was, he played with the Stones. I he think. played with the Stones on yeah. the Emotional Rescue album. I think he played the harmonica and a couple of songs. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. But you know, know Richard had a 
bought a house there and you used to hang out with yeah. these guys. Yeah. They got some funny stories in his in Richard's oh, book yeah. about Life, the, Life yeah, yeah. <laughs> about being in Jamaica there. Good, yeah. yeah. I felt at home there. Yeah, okay. So so music but that's, like, that was the yeah. first album. Right. Because that's a great first album. But you know, you, I like Start Me Up. I like the closing song, which is Waiting on a Friend. But then I started I discovering yeah. things like Black Cadillac or... Wow. or, uh, or Black uh, Limousine. Black Limousine, sorry. Slave is probably yeah, one slave. of the best Da-da-da-da-da. tracks. Da-da-da-da. Oh, yeah. yeah. And and so you you start getting... Uh, to me, it was one of the, the, the albums where there were still stones exploring. Mm-hmm. Right? After yeah. that, they became kind of more, more of a... Let's, yeah. Let's do what we did before, except for maybe Undercover, the song, which was a... That's a very unique... I love unique that song. song it's very know? unique, and it has... Yeah. A, yeah. No, I know what you mean. So they tra- that was basically the end of their era of greatness. To, to, to me, the, the right. era of greatness for them... Six, okay, besides the 60s, where you can appreciate the blues and, and stuff like yeah. that, but 68 to 81. Yeah. And I have all their records from there, and yeah. vinyl and CDs, and... To me, I can listen to any of these albums no. from 68 There's, to 81. Just, and you I can randomly pick oh, yeah. one. It's going to be, be good. Bored. Yeah. Never. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, Sticky Fingers and, uh, you know, all Exile those. Exile Main Street. Yeah. 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 And, but then the, the third album I bought was ACDC, uh, Let There wow. Be Rock. Wow. Yeah. So I you see. So there's, there's this compilation so, there. There's the Stones. Then there's ACDC. And it's very then, hard, right? They're very oh, kind yeah. of power. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? To me, it was yeah. that opened the door to another, uh, you know, I started listening to hardcore and punk. Okay, uh, interesting. A few years later down the road. But then, and I'll stop to the five, first five albums that I have because it's, it's really a, it really shows the direction. You know, when I started listening to music, it was very wide open, right? So you got the compilation, you got the Stones, you got, ACDC. ACDC. And then suddenly my friend buys me moving pictures from Rush. Okay, yeah. And I go, wow. And I had listened to Rush before on Shome, you know, and I, I discovered uh, Rush, uh, and I remember exactly when. I was in, the con- in, in our country home with my parents. My mother was cooking dinner. It smelled like onion and steak. And and I was listening to Showman. They were playing Zanadu. Hungarian breakfast. <laughs> <What's that? laughs> yeah, well, they put steak and eggs together. Well, the proof it was heart attack on a plate, right? Yeah. Alive, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. But, yeah. but yeah, so so I, I, the song was Xanadu, and it was a very trippy song. It starts very slow it and it becomes really yeah. hard. And, yeah. and I said, "Wow, what's that?" You know. And then suddenly, my it friend. It was on the radio there. It was on the radio. It was on the radio. Yeah, okay. I was in my room, and my my mom yeah. was cooking, and I was upstairs in my room. I was listening to that, and I just was. Yeah. Wow, this sounds great. And then my friend for for my birthday gives me this moving picture, and that's that's when I started. You Became know. a lifelong Rush fan. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. I want to come back to Rush, but what was the fifth one? Because I think you named four. Yeah, right. Four. The fifth so one. The, yeah. Ooh, was the fifth can, one? If you can remember it, you don't. Yeah, you don't have to. You know but. what? I think I went back to the Stones then because it was. I probably was emotional Undercover? Risk, emotional, emotional rescue. rescue. Very good record. Emotional Interesting record because yeah. I I had heard she's so cold. Very simple song, but catchy, and of course, emotional rescue the song as well. And and then I discovered their disco kind of, you know, uh, the first the opening of the the opener, the, the opening tune on the album was kind of a disco. I don't I don't remember that dance dance yeah. part one. Yeah. yeah, that's the song. Is and there was the big poster with the uh, negative faces on. Oh, yeah, it. yeah. Nice. Well, the album cover had it looked like it was yep. yeah like a, a negative with. Yep kind of dark blue mm-hmm. yeah um yeah emotional rescue i mean that's it. this the rolling stones disco stuff is really interesting miss you for example mm-hmm. is a great disco mm-hmm. my wife 
is uh, not a huge Rolling Stones fan, but she's nice enough to accommodate me. So we went to see them. <laughs> and so we listened to a lot of Rolling Stones together. And her favorite song is Miss You, which is interesting, you know, because it and, and it's it's a very I mean, it's a great disco hit. My dad pointed out how Mick Jagger quacks at one point. He Could deliberately be. sings off key at one point. It's Could very be. interesting. We were listening to it once and my father was like, oh yeah, he, he sings off key and he goes up high and it's, he's deli- it's off key, but he's doing it. It's like a kind of for effect, you know, which is a very... Could be. Yeah, I, and I noticed that the song is a... Is a lady's favorite yeah that's interesting yeah it's interesting yeah, my girlfriend that, yeah it's, so. this, this occurred to me the other day I, I don't like a lot of stones ballads like kind of like angie mm-hmm. you know who, do, who what group does great ballads guns and roses oh guns and roses. there's there's the second side of lies there's two songs with no drums one of them has the horrible racist mm-hmm. lyrics but if you could just get the <laughs> you know it's awful it's like I was, I was listening we went to nova scotia recently and I, and I had that i loaded it onto the key so i was listening to it a lot i love that the second it's one side of lies and there's two of them i very carefully checked that have no drums so it's sort of a true ballad right uh-huh. just kind of like a love song patience and one in a million and if the racist lyrics, it's so sad because it's such a great yeah. song. It's so well constructed. And the rest of the lyrics are really interesting about this sort of alienated young man. And then there's this horrible sort of, you know, misogynist <laughs> rage. It kind of wrecks it. I'm like, oh, man, if, why does it have to have that terrible lyric? You know? <laughs> interesting. Okay. Well, we could have that conversation about yeah. context, but I'm not sure yeah. context applies there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It was just pure racism, right? You know, exactly. No, there's, it's also like, I mean, I still think it's, I mean, I still listen to it and get a lot. Mm-hmm. You, you know, and uh, and I, I still, you know, uh, and patience too. Um, but just, okay, so I wanted to go back to Rush because I wanted to talk a little bit about Rush. Mm-hmm. I know you're a huge fan. As I mentioned to you uh, privately before the conversation, mm-hmm. um, they were my favorite band when I was 10 or whatever, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, so, and, and, and it's like, and then and then what happened to me was, you know, my friend, my friend John Rowley, who I mentioned, we, we had a band, I played drums and he, he was a, he's also a very good guitarist. And so we were like listening to Rush and everything. Thing. And then, and then what happened to me one day was we were listening to the radio, and "Rebel Rebel" by David Bowie yeah. came on, and uh-huh. I was like, "That is the coolest thing I had mm-hmm. ever heard." So I went out and bought Diamond Dogs. So I like to tell people the first reg- record I ever bought was Diamond Dogs, <laughs> but it probably was some crappy Rush record that I would never listen to now, which you would probably love because you love Rush. But um, I, I do think that Rush deserve a certain kind of a respect in the pantheon of music because they their longevity and they're very unique. There's nothing I can't think of any other group that's quite like Rush. You know, it, if you listen to Rush <clears throat> from the beginning, it, it people thought was the new Led Zeppelin. Right, that's what they were saying. Right, you know, the first, Fly by Night, like the kind even of before early that, stuff, Rush, you know? Rush with the original drummer. That's the only album where there's John okay. Rutzing on the on drums, and he so you could see him. Because Neil Peart has this like wall of yeah, you drums. can see it. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah, you could, but you yeah. didn't need to have a big kid anyway. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they weren't there. You could see that they were playing original material that was largely influenced by what what they were listening to at the at that at the time, and they, which was Zeppelin. And yeah, stuff obviously, like that, right? obviously, yeah. and, Late and, 60s and and recently, uh, Alex Lifeson, the guitarist, he yeah. was uh, met with. Uh, I say recently, probably 10, 15 years ago, but it's recent history. But yeah. for them, but uh, he met he met day, Jimmy yeah. Page and it was a, a kid's dream come true for him. Wow. He said it, you know, it, it was a main influence. But then, quickly, when they switched drummer, when uh, John Rutzi, I mean. Rutschi had to quit because he couldn't tour. He was a diabetic and he uh, he couldn't tour and he had a problem with alcohol anyway. Uh, right. But, but uh, I mean, Peart just joined the band and he, he brought this completely different way of drumming 
which was uh, very intellectual. It was composed drums, very complex, influenced by uh, progressive music and you know time signatures and just and his point, and he said it recently as well. His point was never to repeat the uh, the same, same uh, fill? the same fill, right? And and if you listen to Rush, it's never the same fill. Wow! But it could be in four four, but the fills will always be different, right? Yeah. So, but he brought that. So I think it forced the, the other guys to just yeah. come out of their kind of hard rock, rock and roll, hard yeah. rock shell, and then start exploring other things. They also had a different influences. They they were listening to Yes and and and. To, I don't know. They never mentioned Genesis, but yes, for sure. And and uh, but but you can hear that in their music. But they kept their hard sound as well, you know. And and it's a power trio. That's interesting. So you yeah. have to you like have cream. to build sound. Cream was a power trio, yeah. right? Absolutely. Yeah, the, the yeah. same same structure. Bass player sings, yes. and then you have a virtuoso yeah. guitarist, and then you yeah. got a drummer, a very similar. So so yeah. they they change quickly. And at that time in '75, if you listen to contemporary musicians and bands at of the time there was nothing that sounded like rush mm. and, and especially That's nothing that sounded like neil peart as a drummer right. not even right. I, I mean you can say well yeah bill bruford yeah okay bill bruford fine okay yeah. uh i, I think Who, he was bill he, bruford can you... uh, yes yes is the original yes, drummer, drummer okay until yeah. 71 two close to the edge he made the album he didn't make the tour um and and phil collins was a great drummer also you know? yeah and i think there was this influence although i i don't remember peart naming that but Phil Collins was a probably an influence as well, but in a, the context of hard rock, which was you know yeah. hard rock was just straightforward, you know, sort of Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, yeah. hard the power chords and stuff like that, exactly. right? But then, so so what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is Rush sort of hybridized the sort of the yes and the kind of intellectual, uh, the Genesis too, yeah. you know, and they mixed it with a kind of harder Led Zeppelin sound, yeah. and that, that became that's, oh, yeah. that and that explains their mind, uniqueness, right? In is my that, mind, yeah. definitely, it was an <clears throat> inception yeah. for th that's specific sound the, and it was because of the drummer kind of the, you could say it's the yeah. start or the embryo of progressive metal that we call now which is what would that look what would because i've never heard that term before dream theater dream theater which is a, a copycat yeah. of you know they tried to they were influenced by rush and they're trying okay, to do yeah. some hard rock heavy rock with odd time signatures so and being very virtuoso you know virtual. right right so effectively rush created a, a sub-genre of music in some uh, maybe of, a very small of, you one know, uh, least, maybe people right? would have a different opinion on that i think i think they did i think well, they did well maybe if more than 10 people listen to this podcast maybe someone will leave a <laughs> <laughs> leave a note no it actually would be genuinely or curious start a debate and yeah yeah you'll yeah. have a lot of people <laughs> yeah, listening yeah, to your podcast yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, yeah maybe <laughs> So that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, I, 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 Rush are a band that I think I, I, I respect musically. Kind of what you were saying, a little bit like about Celine Dion. Mm -hmm. It's the same sort of thing of how mm -hmm. I hear them. Um, I also just wanted to talk a little bit about progressive rock. Mm -hmm. That's what you meant when you said progressive, right? Progressive, like, what does that mean? Genesis, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and well, if you want to name Rush, bands, you name yeah. you name quite a, a few big progressive bands. There's like Gentle Giant as well. There's okay. Uh, we don't call it progressive, but Super Alan Tramp. Alan Parsons, Super Alan Tramp. Parson, yeah. yes. Super, super Tramp, Tramp, I would put that. Progressive. But the yeah. idea of progressive, you know, it's... Why is it called it, that? Well, it's like saying pop music. What right, does it what mean, does it right? mean? Yeah. But uh, yeah. progressive music, I think, from what I understand, is that they wanted to to get, you know, move away from the typical rock structure. Right. And make and it more kind of virtuoso. Movements. Right, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Melodies, Operatic. We could put David Bowie in there a little yeah, bit because he created what, like these yeah, kind of. He was influenced by musical theater. Yeah. And, like Diamond Dogs. What he wanted to do with Diamond Dogs, that was the album I mentioned mm -hmm, a minute ago. Mm -hmm. I, I learned later, which I don't know if you know that album. It's a really yeah, interesting I, album. I, I think that there's only two albums I don't yeah. have. From okay, Bowie. and that's one of them? No. That, no, the, okay, you're right, okay. <laughs> in any case, I, I don't know if you know the backstory of that. He wanted to do a musical theater version okay. of George Orwell's 1984. Okay. And so you know there's one song on there, 1984, yes. right? Yes. So yes. And so what happened was he, he, he for years, he struggled with Orwell's, it was his... Um, I don't know if it was his, you know, his estate or whatever, try and get the rights, and they wouldn't give him the rights. I don't know why, maybe because he was this weird rock star, wore makeup, and then they had gave it to uh, Eurythmics, but you know, did that's they? another story. Yeah, okay, I don't. Well, they made the the soundtrack for the movie. Oh, <laughs> did they? <laughs> wow, I don't, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. I love that film. Yeah, that's a great film. That's interesting. Yeah, and and so and so, um, David, I, I would sort of put him on the fringes of that, just because he wanted to do he like when you're talking about progressive rock as a kind of you know these long structures i mean what it also makes me think of tommy by the who right a rock so, opera like so you have a whole storyline you don't just have kind of like okay let's play uh satisfaction and then we're getting you know phil Spector. phil Spector famously said you know he hated albums right you know how he said you know albums are you know two hits and 10 pieces of junk it. or whatever that's right you know and it's like so no 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 it's an album is going to be 12 unique songs that all fit together you're gonna have i think that's kind of what you're getting at right is that yes you know yeah well if you want to have it you know a wide definition of prop music would be that although right. you know for bowie right. people put him in a glam rock box that's true that's true it's, really it's hard to categorize bowie though but it's on because i like Bo bowie also connects to the punk movement and a very he was very influ yeah. influential to the oh, punk yeah. movement and it was the iggy pop and anyway yeah, yeah. i think bowie's kind of a little bit an artist i'm not sure you could really i mean no, i think glam rock is probably the closest you, you could put you know him in, just yeah. in rock music and, and yeah whatever but yeah. you know it's like uh if if you don't it's funny because bowie just to complete the circle there bowie if if you don't like you you won't like the whole catalog if you don't like music in general you know if That's you only like this yeah. type of music you'll listen to only those albums. and uh, there are right. people that only like you know the 80s album from bowie with, uh, with when it. stevie ray vaughn was playing on the albums uh, on uh let's dance let's dance oh, played on stevie ray vaughn? oh yeah oh yeah it was, and it made pop yeah. music different that was the little touch there that made it different. You know, he totally uh, reinvented himself in the eighties. Oh, yeah. Cut his hair, and he was all you know. But then, if you listen out. to Alan Insane, it's completely different. Totally and and and, and there are albums that are the, the recent ones, the nineties and early two thousand, which are you know either electronic or there's it's crazy stuff. Also, his so earliest right. stuff before Space Oddity hit. Have you ever listened to any of that? I, I have the first Uncle one. Arthur. Yeah, it's like it's, really it's like weird English. English. He's very so English, yeah. It's comp I mean, you, you almost wouldn't recognize it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, my favorite Bowie album is Space Oddity. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I, I... I think that at this point... Like Diamond Dogs, I mean, that was the first one I bought, but there's something about Space Oddity that's just... It, the mixture of the calm, mm -hmm. relaxed guitars with the kind of hard rock, yeah. and it's really... Yeah. Okay, so that's interesting. So that, that's so just so progressive, progressive rock. Progressive yeah. is... Uh, it's, you know, yeah. if you want to have a strict definition, it's, to me... And as far as I understand it, it's putting the classical music aesthetics right, right, with right. rock, you know, or the structure on rock aesthetics. Sorry, so rock aesthetics and in, in, in a classical structure where you have a, a theme, a movement, mm -hmm. a, a melody, right? Like a, that would yeah. 
come back once okay. in a while with a different beat with different <coughs> genesis had uh, with with peter gabriel had that kind of struck you know the, you could listen and some and say they're the those, first progressive a lot of people i've heard that said that genesis were i would say that they're you know, yeah i'd say that the they original. represent that yeah very well uh, but then you can put Peter Hamill, which is, you know, used to be in, in uh, Van der Graaff Generator. Uh, it's progressive, but it's not. And even Peter Gabriel, you know, the th three, the four first albums, you know, it's progressive, but it's not. It's just exploring mm, things in rock, trying to stretch rock. Yeah. You wouldn't say Gentle Giant could be considered a, a very progressive rock band because they they had these odd time signatures but they had melodies they I've never heard of them. and stuff and so they, they were they big at a point and, and uh, I think yeah. the leader of the band be, became a, a big A&R uh, executive in, a, in a, okay. one of those big labels at the time yeah. but he made money with that but it was his, his baby was Gentle Giant but uh yeah so progressive strictly speaking is more of the rock aesthetics with classical culture but then Progressive mm -hmm. meant exploratory music. You explore music. You put different instruments. You make longer songs. You don't give a damn about the three-minute format. Yeah. You could put 20 minutes, you'll put 20 minutes. So in that sense, Pink go back Floyd to becomes one of the ultimate. Pink Floyd right, and even yeah. Rush, because yeah. Rush, on their fourth album, when they started recording it, they had a gun on their head. Uh, to their head, right? The labels would Rushed say, your third yeah. album flunked, so you better come up with hits, otherwise we'll We're pull the plug, you. right? Yeah. And they said no. And they made a 20-minute song called which, which 2112. In 76. Wow. That's a double, very odd double album. And right? the, you have yeah. you know, you have a, a side where you have songs, and there, there, there are very good songs on that, but there's the whole side, which is 2112, which is actually like a mini progressive rock mm. opera. It's just it's the story of you know a space a space empire and you know fighting wars and stuff and and it takes place in twenty one twelve you know I think Xanadu's on that album isn't it? it's the next one it's the next it's next one, one. Okay. yeah that's twenty one twelve and so so just to yeah again come back to so, Rush so so that album actually did did well it and did, so it it just yeah. it it secured Rush. As a as a major rock progressive, so they took rock a real chance. Force. They took a yeah. chance, and they uh, they uh, and as far as I read, they were uh, never bothered by the labels to do anything they wanted. They they could after do anything that, they wanted right, after yeah. that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. So that yeah, and also it's it's a great lesson in taking chances mm -hmm. and being open to you know not being too you know constraints like. You know, just sort of saying, we want to do this. And if somebody wants to do it, then fine. And not, you know, not listening too much to people for their interests. And yeah, okay. So anything else about Rush that you wanted to add before? I want to move on to some of the deeper music stuff you've already gotten into I, a little bit. I, but. Rush, I think, uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're still... I, I don't think there's anything that sounds like Rush. Of course, the later, you know, the... the Later albums were more of a, you know, these guys were in their 50s and 60s. And Are they any good? I've not really ever heard them. I don't know. The last one was pretty good. And they had, yeah. for the first time ever, they had real strings instead of synths. And I saw the, the tour live and, and Clockwork Angel. And they had real strings wow. there on the site. And it's the first time they had other musicians than themselves. They really? could do it. And, really? and, and they decided yeah. to do this. But... Um, I think they could what, still what manage they, to make pretty good songs. Yeah, I saw them. All their, all their tours... Uh, um, 
all the shows they they played in Montreal since two thousand two thousand three. Nice. Yeah. Probably had four or five shows, yeah. and in Quebec when they played in Quebec. But okay. um, basically, they were all pretty good songs, pretty good good albums. But I don't think they you could call them progressive anymore. They were like more of a you know structured four four type of regular thing. And I, I think that they. Uh, They streamlined themselves, mm-hmm. you know. Their heydays were really in the 80s, 81, right. you know, from, from 76 to 82, 83. Yeah, this right. was the peak of Rush, the peak of creativity, energy. Uh, they well, sold out tours. They made sold out tours, but they were constantly playing their hits, except for yeah. the last tour where they, they, they were playing their last album. But uh, I, I think something sets them apart is because they they never got the uh airplay that they they could have had really no yeah. they they played they a lot of the same songs the I mean, yeah were, but they never yeah. got the airplay that other bands got and and they were basically building their fan base by touring a lot mm. and i was you know grateful dead model, in 81 right? they were big yeah. rush was big you have to think of you know they were in huge. the 70s And they were they, they were, were like the, they were huge. When I was into them as a kid, they yeah. were massive all over the world. Yeah. They they had become... well, they never played outside of you know, they played U.S. because that's where they made it first, not Canada. It's, really? it's an American label that signed up. Really? Yeah, Mercury. That's Records. interesting. Mercury Records. Then they yeah. came back because they were on Moon Records in Canada. Then they had a deal with Mercury, and then they came back and they started their own label called Anthem. Anthem Records. I remember that. I remember the the it sort of looked like a Satanist, uh, like the lines on the record. Oh, it's a, it's a, a it's kind of a not a pentagram, yeah. but it's a star. Right, right. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but yeah, yeah. So so and and from that point on, and especially from the twenty one twelve, the twenty one twelve album, they 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 became big. Mm-hmm. You know, they 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 were headlining. First of all, they were headlining like five thousand seaters. Then they 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 go into seventy seven, seventy eight. They recorded in England. They came back then. When they, uh, they they started playing a couple of countries in Europe, but they never really extensively toured Europe. They really? went to they went to really? the UK, they went to Germany. They, I don't even think they played France. Wow, you know, it's That's really Germany and, and the UK. Um, but main um, most of the shows were played in the US and Canada. Mm-hmm. Really, the shows in Brazil that was recent and it was. One one tour, like one, one tour. Yeah, their comeback. I, that's something that was just occurring to me as you were talking. Rush were Canadian, of mm-hmm. course. They're they're possibly one of the biggest selling up to Drake. I mean, they they, they must be in the if you had named the top the, ten the, selling. Uh, I don't right? know about I don't know about the number of records, but I, they're, the, they're, the number, they must be one of the, the number top of selling. platinum records. Platinum. They're yeah. one of the, uh, you know, if you look at, and I remember reading this, there's the Beatles, the Stones, uh, there's a third one, I think Aerosmith, and then there's Rush, <laughs> as far as the number of platinum records they have. Interesting. Yeah. That's you know, a lot of records. That's a lot of and, records. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's... And, and, and some albums you can't are multi-platinum. Sell, like, those are, those are platinum on the American scaling, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I was friends with a band, uh, one of my... Good friends was you know, in a platinum band. In Quebec is yeah, right. You know, you know, Boot Sauce. Yeah, yeah right. They had several platinum albums yeah, in Canada. It was like what ten thousand records or something stupid. I don't know, hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't mean anything, right? No. But a U.S. platinum is a million. Yeah, right. So and that's, so there were multi platinum for a couple of albums. Yeah, you know. So in that sense, you know, 
it's not about selling 200 million records. Probably Elton John has sold more <laughs> records than that. But as far as platinum records go, Rush is in the top four or yeah, five. Actual mm-hmm. album that went platinum. Yeah. Whereas like Elton John writes great songs mm-hmm. and then people go buy the single mm-hmm. and they buy the, the greatest hits compilations yep. and all that kind of stuff. That's a very interesting distinction too because it goes back to what you were saying about the, the sort of operatic nature. People, you know, people listen to Rush, they, they want the whole 45 minute experience mm-hmm. of whatever's oh, yeah. going to be. You know, they don't want to hear you know this one tune and then you don't do shuffle yeah a rush song in your playlist yeah yeah it doesn't really work listen to the album. <laughs> yeah yeah that's if you're not listening to an album you're listening to a compilation that's rush yeah yeah interesting yeah. okay so let's so this brings us into the deep music stuff and mm-hmm. i wanted to you know just a couple of things that I, i've thought a lot about recently is charlie watts mm-hmm. he has this signature style where yeah. he syncopates the right and i mean i think i told you this but it it's taken me, I think I can hear it now. Like, you know, the way I hear it is I listen for the hi-hat and I play the hi-hat with my hand and then I try and listen for this, okay, and the snare's on the offbeat. And it's such an interesting little thing that he does. He, he never plays you know, the hi-hat with the snare. Right, it's, it's syncopated, does. right? And so there's the legendary story he claims that they wanted him to play louder so he was getting his hand out of could the be. way and so he could hit harder so he could play satisfaction, have this driving rhythm, you know. Could be. Um, but that's a sort of a deep musical thing that's a small point that has an effect on the sound of the stones, right? There's probably, and there's lots of other things that, you know, you know of other types that would affect Russia's sound or would, yeah. you know. Um, these are these are little things that, you know, if you listen to a band often, it's the signature. Mm-hmm. It's what yeah. you call the signature yeah. of a band. You can identify them. Oh, yeah. right. It's like yeah. at one point, you know, coming back to Rush, but we'll go back to, to Watts. Watts is not, you know, not playing the hi-hat while he's hitting the snare, right? Yeah. Rush was this this kind what of this? signature uh, on yeah. the on the ride when he was playing the ride. Instead of thing, thing, thing. He was doing that. No one else was doing this. things on the ride symbol. He was doing this. He stopped doing it at one point, but really, I, until, until the nineties. No, Did, I don't. I, I think it. I think it. It's at, odd. One, at one point, he, works, he, right? uh, he he found that his, his his style was a little bit stiff. He felt stiff, and he, 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 to he, had, it he had classes Just, with a, a yeah. jazz drummer. I don't. I don't remember his name, but Neil um, Pert had to study with another drummer. Yeah, Is but, he like the greatest drummer in the world? What shouldn't he be teaching? Well, other people? you know, yeah. I'll, what I'll say is a sacrilege, probably to Rush fans. You know. <laughs> So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, hit myself on the head. But I think he's a good drummer, but he's a, he's a, he's a good composer under drum. But he can't improvise. Ah, and I've listened to to him play with Jeff Berlin on the bass on a on a on a on a fusion jazz record, and he's he's just playing like it's Rush, except there's a jazz bass player wow. playing on it. So he's he's very. So he he can do certain things incredibly well, but he can't do things off the cuff. Uh, for example, he had right. a, he had two uh, two records that were uh, uh, paying tribute to Buddy Rich, right? Mm. So he's playing this Buddy Rich thing, but he's he's playing it like I would pick up a song and learn the bass mm. line. He was learning the Buddy Rich, not lines, bringing something to, but it. not bringing yeah. anything. Yeah, and that's really so. He's not wrong. an improviser in that sense. He's not a he's not a jazz drummer. He's a he's a he's a rock drummer. 
but he's a good composer on the drum and he's very solid. He's very tight and he's very creative. So when mm-hmm. I said he, he would never play the same fills, he's very creative. That but, is, that is, but he's very rigid. He's very yeah. rigid in that sense. So, so he's, he, a, he's a good drummer, but he's rigid. You know, you know what that makes me think of is, is my uncle is a classical musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, play, he played first horn in the Frankfurt symphony mm-hmm. in Germany for that whole career over there. Mm. And he would talk about this difference between interpretive music. He said mm-hmm. that what he, he said what we're doing is we're interpreting music. We're not creating, mm-hmm. which was a distinction. Mm-hmm. And so, I think what like what I'm hearing from you is that he was a bit more like a classical musician, kind of like more. I mean, he's taking you know he was taking something to be able to improvise is something is kind of a different skill from being able to play well in some senses, right? You got people. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, you got people who can improvise well maybe they can't keep a beat but they can you know they can improvise things and other people who maybe can do the reverse and the best ones maybe can do both maybe right it's, uh, i don't know i i think um, it comes from his, his he's a as far as i read on him and what he tells us through his, his books because he wrote a couple of books really uh yeah. Appeared, oh yeah yeah got them all there but yeah. um he's uh he's a very intellectual person so he, he approaches his instrument in a very intellectual way yeah and that's why he's more of a composer than just an, an improviser. I think that he was fascinated by the yeah. drums, but then he wanted to reproduce what he liked. Right. And he started like that. So and he started composing. So improvisation and composition are not necessarily the same no. thing, right? No, absolutely you know, not. a person improvising is not composing no. something. They're doing something, although you could try and remember it and try yeah. and redo it, then it would turn into yes. a composition, I suppose, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. From uh, from improvisation or jam sessions, if you want, in you rock, compose. you could yeah. you could say, okay, I'm listening to the tapes and, and oh, I like that. So I'm going to mm. reproduce it, structure it, and then it's going to sound good. And probably a lot of things they do like rush or anyone that's that's what they do right but uh it's it's completely different yeah so you yeah. improvising means okay you feed off each other if you're yeah. if, if you're yeah. playing with other people or if you're playing with yourself well it's kind of a you know you, you just uh a, how do you say that kind of uh, con- conscious what's the expression in english you know it's like a uh, it just you just just play what comes out. Stream of consciousness, Stream of consciousness. right? You're so, kind of like kind of James Joyce or William Burroughs in, in literature or something exactly. like that. You just sort of exactly. throw it out there, yeah. you know, put it out and see how it sounds, yeah. so, so, and not worry if it's in time or if it's following. Just you, you can if you want, yeah. but you don't have to, right? right? right. This, yeah. this is what comes out, and and if you want to, you know, one of the best improviser to me in my mind is Keith Jarrett on the mm. piano. He used to be a jazz pianist, but then he had this. The current album and 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 he's he's just improvising most of his albums is pure improvisation piano. and it's great yeah. you know he's playing even even when he plays the jazz classics and and uh, it's it's all improvised you know yeah. and and you can yeah. hear the musicians you recognize the melody you recognize the theme but then when they go into improvisation you got three musicians that are completely connected yeah. yet they're yeah. all playing their stuff but it fits. And and of course they're playing in some certain keys, but then there's the pianist that improvises solo. Is that that famous album where they got a bunch of musicians together and recorded it live, and it was sort of off the cuff? There's no, a famous, no, uh, the current album is just him playing. Okay. The piano. Oh, okay. Because yeah. I heard about this album. It was I thought it was Keith Jarrett, but it was a few people like that, mm-hmm. and they, and it was sort of last minute they got together and they're kind of jamming, and it turned into a well. Anyway, if I knew the name, it's uh, so that's really interesting. So I, I'd never really thought about that. I always thought about 
um, you know, creativity versus the journeyman style, as mm -hmm. in the person like, you know, my uncle who became a, a very great, you know, really good player of the horn. Yeah. But I'm not sure he could improvise. I don't know. Maybe he can. He's a great musician. Maybe he could learn how to do it. I, I don't know. I, I, but he was trained to play. Like, yeah. here are the notes, and you try and, you know, do the solo in such a way that you do your embouchure mm -hmm. just right so it sounds good. And you have, you can bring something to it to interpret it, but you're mm -hmm. not getting the, you know, the solo is the solo. Mozart wrote it that way, yes. you know, and you're going to play it like you know mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. is that well i i played with a couple of classically trained musicians and they're they were anxious when it you know, was time to improvise when we yeah. said improvise it's a it's against their yeah I, i've heard my father say and this they, they yes just, they just they just Kinda freeze like, they whoa, freeze something. literally they freeze my dad is classically trained you've mm -hmm. met him and he got into jazz later on and he uh, he even played with duke ellington when duke ellington okay. had a pickup when he would come to canada mm -hmm. so he he told me that duke ellington had this strange way of conducting where because he wasn't trained how to conduct. He would just wave his arms. Mm -hmm. and it was totally different. I was supposed to do it. You know, he was like, and he's this kid. He's like 20 years old trying to follow a line. I better play it right, you know. <laughs> but anyway, my dad said something similar. I probably should not try and reproduce what he said because I don't want to misquote him. Was, yeah, but it was something like along the lines of what you said, how when he came to jazz, it was a little bit hard to figure out. He didn't feel comfortable was mm -hmm. the gist of what I got, which is interesting. Because um, they're really different skills. I'm um, just getting back to this thing about um, uh, you know improvising on the drums. Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, Keith Moon of the Who <laughs> is a very interesting drummer. <laughs> I, I really geek out on drummers because I was a drummer, so uh -huh. I'm, I'm trying. You know, so I, I listened to Keith Moon and I was like, well, "How does Keith Moon play?" So I'm watching all these YouTube videos. But what was unique about Keith Moon, and it's a few things. One weird thing: apparently, he didn't play with a hi hat, which is no. sort of weird. No, and and also, I and also, I don't know. I, you don't have to listen to the Who a lot, but some of their stuff, I swear, I hear a hi hat, but it could be some kind of ride symbol he's it using. with air. If, if, if you, yeah, if, if you listen to, uh, uh, I I think, uh, Who Are You? Yeah, seventy eight. Well, that he's playing on the, the the video on YouTube. Think, yeah, there's yeah, there's where he's hi -hat, playing right? it. There yeah. Is. yeah, yeah. But if you, if you <clears> think of the uh, the the, the the original Their heydays, stuff. right? Yeah. 68, 69, 70. The Seeker so and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, all the, yeah right. the, the hits that they played, and to me, the Who is, is always, uh, it's uh, Tommy, it's Live at Leeds, uh, it's uh, it's uh, the album in 71, I think. Who's next? The, who's next? Who's Next, yeah. And then there's the, uh, the, the second albums. rock opera. Uh, to me, Tommy. this is the Who. No, there's another oh, one. Oh, Quadrophenia. Quadrophenia. Right, right. Right, so... Yeah. To me, this is the who, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the 80s. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's and... true what you're saying because The Seeker, I love, it's one of my mm -hmm. favorite songs. That song, I've listened very closely. I don't think there's a hi-hat. No, in it. you know, no I, and, it's, you know. Um, no, and and, and uh, join the, what's the, join together, right? Join Mo together. Playing, That's right. Yeah. Toms, but yeah. he's snare tom, toms, right? But yeah. he's not playing on hi-hat. And I think it's really 78. Yeah, and then he was, started to, and then yeah. he died like the like yeah, same year. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah that's, that's, so that's another thing I encountered mm -hmm. uh, that I read that is, you know, that I'm reading about Keith mm -hmm. Moon that is sort of obvious in retrospect is he did these really crazy fills, like especially mm -hmm. playing the bass tom more than a drummer mm -hmm. normally would, except yeah. for the Bo Diddley beat where you mm -hmm. play the bass tom specifically. But um, 
Yeah, and so you know, I I hear I see him like I listen to him doing these crazy fills where he's like he he hits each drum one time, which mm-hmm. is I don't think other drummers. I remember fills. I do like a flam on each yeah. one. That's how I would do a fill. Yeah. But he, he does like one stick on one tom, one stick on the other, and that's and so this is his signature style, and he uses the ride cymbals a lot. So my, my question to you is. I actually reviewed all the writing credits for mm-hmm. The Who, and it was all Pete Townsend, and sometimes it was some other people, sometimes they were covers. But why isn't Keith Moon credited? If I mean, presumably they didn't tell him to do that. He just played like oh, that's that, a right? Yeah, that's so, I mean, that made them, all those songs, Bob O'Reilly and all that, have those crazy fills. Like, is it because of the way that copyright works, that melodies are copyrightable? And is that is it as simple I, I think, as that? I think that's what it is, you but know? basically... He he was uh, he was never composing. He would he would take what Pete Townsend would compose, and and you can listen to the difference between the Who and Pete Townsend, right? If you right. listen to, uh, there are three albums called Scoop, Scoop One, Scoop Two, Scoop Three, right? These are demos from Pete Townsend. Okay. Demos from Who song or Pete Townsend solo, and you can hear the difference. You can hear when <laughs> because Pete Townsend would play the drums and the bass and the guitars, and he would submit that song, and he would have Roger Daltrey put his you know his voice on it because he, Townsend would compose the lyrics, the music, everything, wow. and then he would he would have his band. So give it, give it the, the Who's signature, right? So, I, I, I guess Keith Moon would just play something over it, and Townsend would say, "Sounds it's good, darn great," you know. Yeah. And Daltrey would put his certain vocal, vocal stuff. And, I was and, surprised to learn Daltrey didn't write the lyrics no. because that's a typical thing. Jagger Richards and and no, it's, uh, it's all you know Townsend. John Lennon and, uh, yeah. and Aerosmith too. There's usually two, but this was all Townsend, Townsend except for a couple know. of songs. John yeah. Entwistle, the bass player, would, right, would right, Boris the Spider, and yeah. And when yeah. you listen to a John Entwistle song, you know it's a John Entwistle song. <laughs> First of all, right? the bass is going crazy on it. Well, all the songs are going nuts, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but he's a great bass player. But uh, you can you can hear because they have a more of a rock and roll. Uh, uh, feel to it. Pete Townsend has more of a kind of a not popish. I would say this. It's more. It's it's a little more sophisticated in terms of chord progression and variety. You know. Mm. And, and uh, tell yeah. me, tell me about. I mean, I I sort of gave you a little bit of my. Yeah. I suppose it's a drummer's Pete. view. What about John Entwistle? I mean, just your view as a bassist. I mean, what makes him unique as a bassist in your view? This is very. They, they call him Thunderfinger, and there's a reason for that. He's a very active bass player. What does that mean? Like, uh, if you he, had to articulate plays, that. Well, he's very. He's, he's got. He's got a very heavy hand on the strings. It's never on, a on light the frets or, or when he's he strumming. Hits the, he, he hits, hits them. He hits the. the oh yeah, he mm. hits. He sometimes plays with a pick, but most of the time it's with his fingers. But. He hits them so hard; it's like a, a, a hammer on a piano string. Oh, interesting! So you got to right? kind of—it's almost like he's doing it as a percussion instrument. Yes, in some and senses, and right? I heard Townsend yeah. talk about that, and he's right. He's saying it gives the bass almost like there was a, a an harmonic tone, which which yeah. you can achieve on a guitar with having a double string. Right, he could achieve right. that by just hitting in a certain way, so it, oh. it made the sound wider, kind of wider. It kind of adds to this notion of the Who were just this power band. I mean, if you see Keith Moon going crazy, it's just like you can hear how heavy it is when he's playing. But when you see him doing it, he's like it's a physical thing where he's almost jumping up and down. He died at 30. eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But uh, I'm not making any relations out. So he had his party life. But uh, he was a bit of a maniac. I mean, his, 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 you know, destroying hotel rooms and all that. 
you're talking about the drumming. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll go back. Well, to just, the bass, just to say right? that the drumming and the it sounds like you're you're making a case. The bass playing was very hard in the sense he was almost hitting, and then the drumming. So you've got this. I, I don't know if that's a general thing with the Who or uh, uh, you the, know. I, it's in in a funny way. If you listen to a rock band now, you will you will listen to the drums to get a sense of the rhythm, mm, right? Yeah. You don't do this with the Who. Yeah. Listen to the bass player. Interesting. Yeah. Listen to the bass yeah. player. And there's also there's uh, Pete Townsend's guitar, and this is the found. These guys are the foundation of the you know the rhythm, and Keith Moon was playing the drums like a pianist would play. Right, right. Yeah, he's fun. he's just all over. The, I'm not saying he's not tight. Of course, he's tight. Yeah, no, no, on, I get it. On I his it. on his bad days, if you listen to the Isle of Wight CD or or video, he's not so tight. But he's probably pissed. He's probably, uh, or some you know, sort of elephant yeah, tranquilizer. Yeah. yeah, I don't know, but because uh, he's got so much energy. But uh, and but it's it's really that yeah. you know he's playing the drums not like a drummer would play. And there's this jazz thing about this playing, mm. you know the, the Gene Cooper thing. Yeah. yeah. But there's also this uh, freedom mm. that open. you don't hear anymore because now they're they're trying to be so. Yeah so straight and follow that it, you should play like this and I, now it's it's all over the place well I was taught when I was learning how to play drums that you're supposed to be the metronome for the group mm -hmm. that's what I was told and so I would always be trying to count and get everything on and the others and supposedly the guitar is supposed to listen to me to keep on mm -hmm. you know um, but what you're saying is really interesting because I heard I think it was Bill Wyman talking about how with Stones he said normally a rock band the drummers the, mm -hmm. but with the Stones actually Charlie was listening to Keith Mm -hmm. And he said it created a, a wobble, which is I yeah, don't know if that's up and now. Yeah, yeah. There's a well, he said he said it sounds great, except that it can sort of spiral out of control, yeah. and things can kind of you know you can lose it all yeah. of a sudden if you, but you know it's it's kind is, of a, talking about the Who. One of my friends said you know, the Who. If you listen to the Who, it's not a rock band; it's a rock jazz band. You see, yeah. there's jazz rock, there's jazz, but there's the rock, rock jazz. jazz. Yeah, right. because the dynamic and especially live studio is a different thing. Mm. In the studio, they can do whatever they want. They can be, but live, that's when you see you what really the band is all about. Like. And, and they're listening to each other. And if you watch a video from the who, especially in the 70s, 60s, 70s, Keith Moon is always watching Pete Townsend. Pete Townsend. Yeah. And, uh, so it's exactly like Charlie Watson. And yeah. yeah, and Entwistle is always yeah. watching, but he's he's there. He's grounded. He mm. physically never moves. He doesn't move. And people can uh, can, uh, can they they all relate to the rhythm of the bass, the rolling rhythm of the mm. bass. Yeah, and then there's the singer that does his stuff, but. They're all listening to each other, feeding off each other. And if there's a wobble, what, what, what you mean is speed, uh, change in speed, change right. in tempo? I guess that's what it means. I don't know what Bill they, Wyman meant. They play, I, yeah. they play with that. They play, the who yeah. they play with that. They, yeah. they play with the dynamics, with the volume, with the speed. That's why I, I think Live at Leeds, if, if people had to listen to that album, uh, even, the, even the yeah. simplest version, because there's the extended version with where they play Tommy entirely oh, wow. with okay. a four-piece yeah. band. And, but How long can, did that take? It must have been a three or four hour show. Probably two yeah. two parts. Yeah, but, wow, uh, wow. yeah. But basically, yeah. you can hear this dynamic of uh, you know listening to each other, feeding off each other. There's always Pete Townsend that when he plays something, you can hear mm. Keith Moon react to that and switches switches riff or really lick or, or drum yeah. pattern, and then it's starting in another direction. And they, when they play, they play a medley of all the 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 Tommy songs and it's just fantastic and, yeah. and really I, I like this idea of it's a rock jazz band because 
there's structure, but there's improvisation. Yeah. And yeah. jam, and, and it all fits. And there's this... That, the so dynamics. they're almost a jam band. So it sounds oh, yeah. not, like the Grateful oh, yeah. Dead. I mean, I don't know. The Grateful Dead were famous for never walking on stage with a set list, right? They would just yeah. go on, and they would basically just it was a jam. They but would, the, you know, I, I don't know whether the the Who had set lists. I, the Rolling Stones have very set, very clear lists. They, yeah. play, you know, and then I'm not sure I would call them a jam band, even though they do improvise and they do, you know, I, I know that Keith Richards and um, Ron Wood, Ron Wood, they they have this weaving system yep. where they kind of play off each other, but. So it's kind of like you're making a case that jazz, the jazz sound is kind of like a jam band thing. Is that, yeah. that might be too simplified? I yeah, well, know. you can jam that... on one riff forever yeah. and then develop it. And I, I remember playing in a, when I was playing in a, I had a project that was that, you know, we would, someone would start with a, a certain lick or a riff and we would kind of develop that it. on there. And mm. if someone would, we would rarely change key. Mm. We would just add stuff or change the lick or change the riff or change, but it was always in the same key. And That's we would, we would yeah. make that, that jam evolve. The who is not like that. They, right. won't, they, right. they won't play one thing forever. They will play many things. And one has to watch and listen and, mm. and, and just be very attentive to whoever the leader is. And most of the time it was Pete Townsend who would just mm. call the shot, you know? He was really, the, it's, it's kind of like, it's interesting when you have a... a he was a conductor in the band. Yeah, well, it's, I, I know that um, Led Zeppelin too, mm. uh, Jimmy Page was the musical director and Keith Richards is really the, mm. like, I mean, you know, when, when the Stones kind of were having their rough period in the mm. 80s, you know, Mick Jagger's vocals are very identifiable. Mm -hmm. So when you listen to, when you hear the Stones to identify them, it's usually his voice. Mm -hmm. But when Mick Jagger went and made his solo stuff, it was not very good. And Keith Richards' solo stuff sounded more like the Stones. Oh, yeah, you know, it had a, because he really was the sort of the driver. So I wonder if that's a feature where to the guitarist is that is that something that would be not an axiom but a guitarist is a good basis to direct a band is that or is that just a coincidence that in those three cases you know, you know if, uh, if, if you if you I, I yeah you can say yes but you can say no if you remove Geddy Lee from Rush is it Rush he's the you bass know? player but at the same time if you remove Alex, Alex Lifeson from Rush is it Rush but okay maybe it's a special case there but I agree that uh, uh, what's his name? Keith Richards' stuff sounds more like the Stones than Mick Jagger. But Mick Jagger, uh, Mick Jagger, when he's in the Stones, he he brings a certain aesthetics. You know, he's oh. trying to be a, a, a blues singer. So, again, I have a friend he's, that he's also tell you a great much musician. I think. Oh, yeah, I think oh, Mick yeah. Jagger. People underestimate how good he is uh, musically. That's my I, personal opinion. Yeah, but, I think you but, know, you know, it's you can either like the songs or not. But I think he's a he's more a pop-oriented artist Probably, than a yeah. blues-oriented artist, yeah. although he loves blues, mm. but he wants to differ really differentiate himself from the Stones. Mm. Keith Richard is the soul of the yeah. Stones. Yeah, that's true. That's a good you way know, to phrase I, it. I think yeah. that's it's my view. No, no, it's, 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 I, think, I think it's very apt. I mean, he's, I mean, I suppose ever since Brian, um, Brian Jones, Jones died, right? Yeah. Brian Jones was the, I think Keith Richards was not, Brian Jones was actually a musical genius, I think. I mean, he, he could pick up any instrument and sort of learn how to play. Keith Richards took a longer time to get really good at music. And when he did, he, you know, so I think since the death mm -hmm. of, it would be a good way to put it, that his would be yeah. the soul, right? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My, Brian Jones, 
colored the sound in a way that you can't miss this is 60s stones yeah that's brian jones yeah and in 67 it was uh, the, the decline of brian jones for, for you know, drugs, drugs and, and stuff really but stuff. Yeah. and really 68 was the, the the rise of keith richard as the, the you know the riff keith keith, keith riff hart keith, you know, yeah, keith, right. keith riff hart but <laughs> and the men of yeah. uh, the, the men with a million riffs and stuff like that but uh yeah yeah, well, he he learned how to do the the open tuning, which I suppose that comes from. Link he learned Ray. it. He learned it from other other yeah. musicians. Well, this Link Ray is open tuning, right? That that Link Ray. The, yeah, the, I, uh, that's an open tuning. I, yeah, maybe. Kind maybe, of the, you know the know. famous uh, the, uh, you're into Link Ray. I think we talked about it. Yeah, right? Rumble, but the famous song is Rumble. Rumble, bang, right? Dang, dang, dang. That's yeah. an open tune song. I. Um, I'm not sure. I think it's a power chord. It's a power chord. Because uh, with, sure open, open with open tuning, it's like, I remember I read that book by Keith Richards, mm -hmm. and he, he must have spent dozens of pages describing open mm -hmm. tuning, and I was reading all about it. And then I took this course on rock and roll history with a with a, a guy at the University of Rochester online, just for fun, you know. And and he, he, he was doing a course, and he was going to talk about open tuning, so he had a guitar. And then I finally understood it after one second that he strummed it, like, just because I saw him strum the, like, he tuned it, and he just did an open, mm -hmm. like, with his left hand is, like, beside. Yeah. And I, I think that's, know. for example, uh, an example of that, if you're talking about the Stones, is uh, uh, Honky Tonk Woman. As an open tuning. The beginning. Yeah. If you watch yeah. the videos, Richard is just doing this. You know? Right. He's just, I, well, you can't see this on a, <laughs> on a, on a podcast. On a podcast, but, but, but basically scrubbing. he's just, he's got yeah. his free hand and he's waving the crowd and he's just, <laughs> right. yeah. And, uh, and I think it's a yeah. it's a D, right? It's interesting. I think, yeah. but that's it. But it allows him to play stuff that you can't really play or make sound the same way on a on a normal tuning tuned instrument. That's what he said in the book. He said yeah. that it was something like it was almost like learning to play guitar all over again. It and is, it's, you know, it, it is because really positions you know. are different. You, if you want to make the same chord, it's not going. It's first of all, you have to put your fingers in, in, uh, uh, and they're on different frets, but it's going to sound different because the relationship between that string and that string is different and where your tone, fingers are in relation to the, the tone when you're pressing on the yeah, fret exactly. and all that and it's unique to the guitar too because a bass you don't strum chords right no, so you, you, want, really you can if you can. want but i've, it's I've not never typical. seen that it's bass a monophonic uh, instrument most yeah. of the time you know yeah. you play one what's the term for that monophonic, monophonic. Yeah. I, I call, that's what i call it because yeah. you play one note, one at, note a at a time they use this for synth right you have mono synth and poly synth polyphonic where you can play Chords, but monophonic sense you can only play notes like a piano one a single well piano well, pianos you can also yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it's right, just yeah. because circuitry at one point did not allow for two oh, notes to be played at the same time and now right now it's, and that, okay so the old school moog and stuff it. like that were monophonic like yeah, the mellotrons and all that yeah, yeah intro that's really mellotron was different because there were tapes oh yeah and you could okay. record anything you wanted so it was a sampler but it, yeah, it's a sampler. It's effectively. one of the first samplers. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you could that. sample strings, but you could sample any sound. You know, you, any sound on the tapes, and you just actually adjusted the tapes so that it would be an an E or a C or an right, F, right? Right. That's was that the one that Paul McCartney? You sent me that Paul McCartney video where he was doing um, Strawberry Fields. Was that a Mellotron where he was demonstrating in front of a, a a group of people how he wrote it, and he and it was I in could, front of a keyboard, and he was doing be. the. Could be. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't remember that yeah. one. But Mellotron is very is a it has a very typical sound. You know? It's yeah. like a very unique, almost ghostly. It's almost ghostly there. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, but yeah. coming back to you, you were talking about the drums. Yeah. The Who. You can't listen to the Who 
you know, using the same standards as you would listen even to the Stones, but mostly like normal rock bands, you know, Aerosmith, for example. You, it's not the same thing. Yeah. Keith Moon is not the, the timekeeper. He, he's tight, but he's, <laughs> he's a, too he, crazy. He's, uh, he's, he couldn't possibly be responsible for something like texture, that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Rhythm is bass and Pete Townsend. Right. Right. And then right. there's the singers. That's how you need to see it. That's yeah. so and, interesting, and, and, yeah. and the bass is, yeah. is really grounding the songs there, and it's it's and very hard as you point out. He has to because striking. there's yeah. only one guitar alive, so he has to be loud and he has to occupy the space there to fill that space. That that brings me to something else I wanted to talk to you about. Mm -hmm. This is something that occurred to me. Can we divide bassists into two categories? There's kind of the flashy like i think of like flea or jaco pastores where they're slapping at the mm -hmm. bases sort of front and center and you're making me think mm -hmm. that maybe john Entwistle was like that and then you got the bill wyman types who just basically play as background is that a reasonable distinction or maybe well you can you could you know you can watch a guy play and he's playing one note but he's jumping all around right, right yeah. and then you got bill wyman if you listen to the yeah. his, his, his lines they can be very complex and you know. but it's not front and center though Right, like when you listen to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the flea is also he's slapping. What's that called? Slapping, oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So that's all. Like that's a kind of it's a very it's it's a different style. It comes from jazz. I think Jaco Pastorius. Well, you, you, you kind of uh, right. Yeah, and rockabilly as well. You know, you, you right? Slapping. Yeah. Oh, I never thought of that. You're literally hitting yeah. it with your thumb, swinging your hand yeah. like that. Right. You would you would hit. Right. The strings. I never realized that. I always thought it was a uh, sort of jazz, like, you know, Jocko was this, what, Brazilian. Jocko never slapped, really. He said it's, it's, he, was, he was really playing with his fingers. Um, but funk, the funk players would, would right. hit because right. it yeah. was rhythmic. They, yeah. they, would, they wanted to, to put rhythm into yeah. the bass and not just... You just know, be the, the background, just the, the background. melody of the background. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, exactly. is, is that, that seems like it's a bit of a crude distinction, but it, it's sort of, when I listen to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I don't listen to them much anymore, but I can't help but hear the bass, like kind of, in, you know, it's almost like it's acting like a guitar. Yeah. And from what you said about John Entwistle, I don't know. Um, well, he was not a flashy is. person, but if right. you only listen to a record, He also stands stone still yeah. on oh, yeah. stage. He, he doesn't, doesn't want to move. move and he did, he yeah. Didn't. He didn't yes. But he didn't need to move. But yeah. his sound was first. First of all, it was live. Live. He was really loud, yeah. and and he was he was uh, he was playing thousands of notes. You know, he was a thunder <laughs> finger, right? That, that's what they call him. He was never playing. Right. Right. Yeah. Just a straight bass line. So he was he was playing a lot of notes, loud. And in that sense, his playing was flashy, but he was not a flashy person. Right, Bass right, is really right. important in the who. Remove that, and it's not the who. Um, remove Flea, and it's not it's not mm, Red Hot Chili Pepper. Yeah. But Flea is also a very spectacular guy to watch, right? right? right. So you can you can you can analyze that it's from true. a live That's perspective a... and from a studio perspective. What are you listening to? Mm. If I listen to Red Hot Chili, obviously the drums and the bass. You could you could do away with the singing and the guitar. You don't even need the guitar. No, right? actually, I mean, you know, you don't need it, but it, it's not as important. At least to the earlier stuff before could, they got the the newer guy. They, I could you know. I could listen to an album, uh, Sugar Sex Magic. That's the one. That's the one I'm thinking okay. of. When they were when they were really big in the '90s, when they were yeah, sort of and huge, and that's when you know. actually because before that, Mother's Milk was a very almost like a wall of sound. They had the same kind of vibe, but it was a wall of sound. Mm. Rick Rubin 
famous producer who produced uh, Beastie Boys at yeah. the beginning and L. Great musician in his own right in many and, respects. And yeah. he, he, was, he was already a, a big, big producing star producer. And, and he took Red Hot Chili Pepper and he, he just cleaned it up. Interesting. And he, 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 asked, yeah. he asked the guy, he asked, uh, the, uh, I don't remember the, it was not Frusciante, who was it? At the, anyway, he asked the guy to, John. You know, just play two notes there, and then he and 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 the the, the singer was basically rapping most of the time. Yeah. And then yeah. then the, the bass player also was Flea. Of, yeah. Flea was playing notes, but you know, and then you had Chad Smith who was like, and we had this conversation with a friend a few days ago that you could take away, remove the guitars and the singer, and you could add a pretty decent yeah drum and bass. Album version that could almost stripped down version of, of almost a, you're making me think of the white stripes had this very kind stripped of, down just yeah. guitar and drums yeah. which is yeah, uh, yeah, it yeah. worked i mean and it actually worked that right? that tells you how important the bass was so we're talking about the drums because obviously no drums in red or chill pepper is nothing right? that's right right but yeah. the bass is the second most important instrument and that in that sense uh, in the chilies in, in the, the chilies yeah, yeah. Right. You know, just listening to an album, you know that the bass is important. Yeah. It's very active and it's very creative. He's very funky. It's a rhythm and it's like an extension of the drums. Yeah. Remove that and you, it, there's nothing, right? Because if there's only the guitar there, it sounds like a fire uh, a fire pit song. You know, it's like, okay, well, listening to really isolate the guitar. Really, and it's, I've never noticed that because at the time I, I had Mother's Milk and I had um, the Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Mm -hmm. And I remember I liking them both a mm -hmm. lot, but I don't remember. I mean, at the time I was much younger, so I wasn't really. I, I should go back and try and listen to them both in a row well, and see if I can hear that, that distinction. There and, uh, is a huge yeah. difference in sound. Huge difference in sound. Wall of sound completely. Uh, bare mm. bare band it's bare bone yeah. but it's very good so in both are very good in their own rick rubin ways. i'm glad you mentioned him because he's such an interesting character i mm -hmm. i've been listening to a lot of he has a podcast where he talks mm -hmm. i don't know if you've heard that no he did one with the beastie boys and they okay. talked all about they talked all about their first album their uh not their first album but the the, the first breakout license to ill mm -hmm. which you're probably gonna think this is crazy, but I still think that's probably their best album. It's so there's never been an album before that or since that sounds quite like that album. The Beastie Boys stuff later on, they're doing this kind of jazzy stuff, which I really love, you know, on you know, Hello Nasty, and they're doing reggae things. It's kind of like I feel like I could replace that with like some other musician, and it would sound sort of similar. Whereas when I hear Posse and Effect, and they're doing all these weird lyrics, mm -hmm. and they have this very stripped down it's all synth it's all you know it's all it's there's no there's no um, oh it's the, the instruments drum uh, it's a drum machine a and drum a, machine an 808 yeah. the thing they used to use the in the 80s all the rappers yeah. used and it's just so incredible to me and i've never gotten tired of that mm -hmm. i can listen to the album to this day mm -hmm. you know the other beastie boys ones i listen to them and i kind of don't listen to it for another you know five years or something but that one and and, and it's sort of strange because it's like it's as it one of the uh recent um I don't know. They, they when they did that podcast, they they said the lyrics are like something out of a Porky's movie, oh, yeah. right? Which is Absolutely. like <laughs> just these ridiculous. And you watch the videos; they're doing all this crazy stuff, throwing water on the they were, audience. They were known as being yeah. uh, really nasty. I mean, they 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 were criticized for making fun of you know of what of being impro improper and making fun of the 
handicapped kids and stuff like right. that. And were like, right. anyway. That sounds like something there was they a, would there do. Was a, yeah. a party album, basically. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, it, was, it was a bunch of kids having fun. But some of the best, I mean, there's great albums that are people, kids just having fun. I mean, the early Stone stuff, I and mean, what are they doing? They're just screwing around, too, you know, so... Um, I don't know how to fit in the Beastie but, uh, Boys into a, a discussion of like deeper, more jazz, um, because it's know. it's kind of you know. To, to me, sure. it's funny because to me, I I appreciate that first album and I I have it, but the album that that did it for me with the Beastie Boys is the second one, which is Paul's Boutique, oh, I love where they Paul's, they, yeah. they 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 kind of yeah. Well, first of all, they left Def Jam or Def, Def Jam. Yeah, they, they, they had a, I got, a I got, rupture. It was not I a good... I got screwed, uh, as far as I know. But There's anyway. a lot of different sides. I, I think Russell, what's his name? Russell, uh, the, the, the starter, the, yeah. the black guy, Russell Simmons, Russell Simmons, Simmons. W- w- had a different uh, story. Mm. They had their story. That's Who knows so what the hell happened, all, right? Like the, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. But about, anyway. Let's but argue just about the, the Constitution yeah, exactly. here. But. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we're talking about the music here, right? Yeah, so so yeah. they left Def Jam. So and they went... They yeah. went, and I think they went to California, but I'm not sure. But they, 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 uh, they, uh, they went into studio, and they they took forever, and they they started playing because they had this, this pile of money, right? right. They got rich. With the it was huge that that album. And so they had was, they had money yes. and they had time, and they they took their time. And then it, it's if you listen to that, it's 1989, and I've personally I've never heard at at in, you know in those days an album that was. So organic yet not organic. Mm, there were so many planned. samples. No, there was yeah. like a almost like a uh, anthropology <laughs> and kind right. of you know they were like yeah. they were they were taking one vinyl and they would take that little snippet and then they would take yeah. another yeah. snippet and then they would take another snippet and they would add them up on beats and I was just like. And what they sort the of interject, they would interject like talk, you know, like at one point there's that Jamaican guy talking about Paul's Boutique and they're in yeah, Brooklyn or whatever. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, it, sort of like, you don't know whether you, li- if, 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 yeah, yeah. If, if, if you were, if you were to listen to it, you'd be like, what's going on? Did the radio just come on? Like if you, if you hadn't heard it before, you'd be really but that's, like, that, yeah. that, that's yeah. what was cool about it. Because yeah. you, 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 you look it at It throws the sleeve, you for a loop, right? right? You, yeah. You look at the sleeve and you... And actually, the sleeve was made to, and it was a three sixty uh, photograph. And I would, <laughs> I would open the sleeve and I'd, I'd look into it like this, you know. And I would just put my head in, wow, in that okay. sleeve. Wow. Okay. I don't think I ever had the actual album album. I and, think I had uh, it on cassette yeah. or something. And, so I, that's and I, uh, interesting. And I, uh, so, so hold on. Just let's describe yeah. this. So you could, you could take out the it's a the, th- the record thing, and and it would, and you would be able to put it on your head. Well, no, like, it's, it was not meant for that. I did that. Okay, you did that. <laughs> it's a stupid <laughs> right. kid, you know. Right. But I, I figured. And, okay, you look, this is a three sixty degrees. So you could I put, put it on your head and turn it around, and, like this, yeah, and, look, right. and feel like I'm at the, in the middle of that uh, of that crossing, right? And so I did that, but you know, That's I still great. do it once in a while just to. Uh, Why not? Right? Yeah. I need my glasses now to see. But, yeah, yeah. But uh, but I could feel the music was 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 uh, was in line with the pictures and the vibe and the, mm, it was just a, it was just like being in the middle of the street with and just the music there and then suddenly you hear that guy talk to ask for Janice in uh, yeah, Post yeah, Boutique and yeah. then yeah. And they're the in Brooklyn B-Boy Booty yeah. Bass which yeah. is the last song on the album yeah. which is a, a mix of almost almost freestyling on a corner you know you got guys rapping on the corner yeah. that's what it yeah. feels like you know and it was well that's how, that's how they they came up I, there's a, that that I, I recommend that Rick Rubin talking about License mm-hmm. to Hill because they mm-hmm. talk about how yeah, they they were they were hanging around with all these kind of guys who were legends like mm-hmm. like um, 
um, um, LL Cool J. Yeah. They were like, and they were just kind of, they were just doing stuff in New York together. Public they were Enemy kind of, yeah, as well. Uh, Public Enemy. They knew all those guys, yeah. and they kind of, you know, and 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 they were talking about how Rick Rubin said something really interesting he, with License to Ill. He said that. He said, "If, I, if we would just kind of bounce lines off each other, be like in a bar drinking, mm-hmm. and and he said, if I could make both of them laugh, I knew I had something yeah. right because yeah. that's the other thing about License to Ill. It's hilarious. Oh, yeah. It's just hilarious. Yeah. Like and and the let me clear my throat. Like it's just such a weird thing. And and they were ta- they were all talking about how laughing and and what it was apparently it was um, LL Cool J before he was gonna do a nut take do a take or whatever he was." getting ready and he said oh let me clear my throat like before you know right and i can t- and when, it, when i heard him describe that i can totally understand being with a bunch of kids at that age and finding that hilarious hearing it you know just kind of repeating it over and over again and like you know so i love that mixture of kind of very lowbrow with very it's it's become this iconic album mm-hmm. at the same time it's mm-hmm. really you know interesting right. uh, they they went on to do other i mean they worked with lee perry and they did all all kinds of amazing stuff i mean they're 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 possibly one of the most interesting groups from that era i think Beastie uh, boys yeah i, I, I think so because I mean, they're, they're also musicians i mean they played they actually they used to be a hardcore band they were before. a punk band they yeah, did the have, rap have they, you know their hardcore <clears> album here but and they brought this back at one point yeah, in their albums. Yeah, on some of their other stuff. Their live uh, live uh, performances as well. And and that's what made... I, I saw a show on... Uh, it's it's on YouTube, actually, 90, 1998 in Scotland. Of the Beastie Boys. Beastie Boys, playing 98 live. Scotland, playing yeah. live. And uh, and it's just fantastic. It's, yeah. a, it's a black and white. Okay, yeah. So the, and they're playing their instruments. They're doing also, music, music, as well also, as the rapping. And the funny thing yeah. is that the opening is the, it's their DJ. Right. Mix ma- yeah. Mixmaster Mix Master Mike, Mike yeah. and he's just playing, and then he starts. Guess, guess what he starts with? His backbeat is uh, a song from Rush, Tom Sawyer. <laughs> that's gonna, that's gonna grab you, right? And then, yeah, well, yeah. First yeah. thing I throw is what? Uh, yeah, they're using yeah. And and then and then he finishes his set, and then the BC boys he starts playing uh, one song from Hello um, Nasty, and mm-hmm. then they, they all come. Up they all come out running. And at one point in the show, they take their instruments, and there's, there's a keyboard player there, and yeah, so it's, it's, it's yeah. So that was when they were really big. I mean, yeah. um, Rick Rubin actually was their DJ on on a tour they did in the uh-huh. '80s. That you know they opened for Madonna, <laughs> which is like when you think about how crazy that is. And they were and they were describing this, and they said that like so they would go on that Madison Square Garden or what, and they were like eight, nineteen, or you know they were really they were they didn't know what the hell they were doing. They were just like twenty one years old or whatever. And they're out there, and they, the way they were describing it was there were all these girls and their mothers in the audience who were like, who the hell are these fucking weird guys with their hats? And, and then Rick Rubin said, you know, um, the, what, what I really wanted to do at that point was make them hate us, right? Like, make, Because then it's really interesting what he said. He said, if we go out there and we just kind of shove it in their faces – that they're going to hate us, but they're going to remember us. Yes. They're going to remember us because they're like, that, remember that crappy fucking band that opened, but we had to suffer through or whatever. And they and you know, I guess they were the rude thing, and they were this and they were that. What's the first thing you do when you're a teenager and your your parents tell say this? You're yeah. going to buy the album. You're going to go, yeah, yeah. It's a way of promoting That's yourself. It. Yeah, exactly. Rick, Rick, Rick Rubin is just such, I mean, he's produced so many different, he's done like heavy metal, he's done like Metallica and all, all he's these done kind of Metallica stuff. Uh, later on, but he did Slayer <laughs> at the beginning in 86. He worked with and Johnny, Johnny Cash. Johnny like, Cash. Yeah, you know. Tom Petty. Tom Petty a lot, yeah. Uh, what else did he do? Uh, um, he w- one thing I heard him on one another, ACDC album. He really <laughs> he did one. Okay, yeah. 
<laughs> he talked about how Tom Petty. This is this made me think of what you were saying about a band playing together. Apparently, Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne mm-hmm. were the two. Jeff Lynne was, I suppose, the music guy of Tom. Depends. Petty. On, no, Jeff um, Lynne was in ELO, Electric right, so he, Orchestra, but he okay. played. They played together they played, in tra- the Traveling Wilburys. Right. Right. Okay. But he t- he Rick Rubin talked about how I think it was Jeff Lynne and, and Jeff Lynne produced a couple of Tom Petty. Maybe guys. that's what Full it is. Right. Fever, for example. Okay. Right. And he said Jeff Lynne when he was producing Tom Petty would. Every single thing was done separately. So the, the hi-hat, like they would just play the hi-hat alone and they, then the, the snare and then the cymbal and then the, the bass line and then this. And it was complete. You think about how, I know, I know, it's all kind of snip. snipped, edited together. And it sounds really weird because it, it's like, because I love Tom Petty. I think Tom Petty is like some, not all of his stuff, but a lot of his stuff. I find it really interesting, you know, refugee and stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, it's really good. But when I listen to it now, it's like I can really hear that very highly produced. It's very clean and very. All the Jefflin albums are, yeah, are you clean, know, really and it, it's it's really different from say you were talking about the Who or the Stones, where it's kind of there's this sort of raw energy of them playing together, right? It's a very and it's sort of um, less. It's less. I wouldn't say less tight is the wrong word because they're very tight, but there's something. It's less clean in a certain way, but that's not a bad thing necessarily. No, we can, we call it in, in in studio term. We call it bleed. There's bleed. You know, if you play in the same room, you might you might put some you know acoustic walls mm. between the musicians, but so you still music? have a microphone right. that will catch right. the other musician's right. sound. So if you isolate yeah. the bass, you might hear, hear the drums. What if about if there are separate cabins, though? Don't they? You could if you want. You know, yeah. Most of the time, the, the drums are. If you because play so as a band, yeah. you would record in different rooms at the same time with headphones. But there will still be some bleeding. You know, mm. it's not as perfect as you recording your guitar while there's the pre-recorded mm. track or with the click track. Yeah, right. You can't really isolate everything except if the drum is in a sound booth right. and the singers in a sound booth and but then you're not really playing together you're, you're sort of it's almost no. like playing on zoom except it's better coordinated that's it thing, so you know? so and it's um, you know it's one way of recording it you have more control over the sound and the tones and stuff like that and, and on, on top of this if you have a guitar you can what they call this reamping so basically you you record a dry sound and then you could put any effects on it or played through any amp to color the sound any way you want after you've recorded the song you know yeah i, I remember the, the just, yeah i'm just sort of thinking about that book life I, I remember richard said something about how there's something unique because he, he, he had i guess they sometimes they would do the typical you know mm-hmm. guitar whatever and then mix it together but he said there's something different when the band plays mm-hmm. together and, I, and i'm guessing that when they're in those separate cabins that it's not quite the same as actually being you know a few feet away and you know kind of yeah and, it's, and yet you get the bleed so you get a different you get the thing bleeding it's i'm not sure if that's a trade-off exactly it's just a different so it's a yeah, different way different it's a different style a different way of recording and now you know, for example acdc they do this, yeah, you know, and and what well, play uh, together and Iron Maiden. They, they, they do this. Play, and it's funny because they, they sound these albums sounds perfect. Right, they, they sound perfect, but they play like this. Really, uh, that surprises me about ACDC because they do sound very crisp. And mm-hmm. sound, I always thought ACDC would have been produced. Well, they, you know, they very, probably have a way to isolate themselves better, but they like to play together, and right, it's the same thing right. with Iron Maiden. And you can feel it because you hear yeah. the, the drummer calls a shot, and then there's. There's, yeah, but they're so good at what they're doing, that, <laughs> you know. And of course, yeah. Iron Maiden, they always and ACDC, they always plays the same song, but a different, you know, 
you know what I mean? It's what like mean? always the same song, you know, the, right. either in E or the M Oh, yeah, e, right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of like uh, Smashing Pumpkins, their stuff is all in one key. But, um, yeah. anyway, yeah. but uh, uh, bands that are more technical tend to isolate you know, I think Led Zeppelin were very technical, from what I've heard. I, th I think they well, had a well, very Jimmy clean... Page was a producer. Yeah, he was I mean, a music producer. He was, yeah, he was producing yeah. that band. Yeah, and uh, yeah. oh yeah, very studio kind of. Yeah. Okay. Well, this brings me to a kind of an, another thing that um, is maybe a bit more esoteric is how, how should we listen to music? I mean, you know, is is there a way? Like, is it important? Like, this is going to sound very bad to you, but a lot of the music I listen to is, like, in my car, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's the time that I, you know, that's when I have time to listen to music, mm -hmm. which is probably a very cheap excuse for, you're a real music person, right? Yeah. So, I, like, do you do you sit at home here and just kind of listen to music and just kind of look out the window and... It depends. Yeah. I mean, you know, is, it, or is that, on, is that important? It, it really is depends. That... And, uh, you know, when I'm here... And I'm in, in a certain state of mind, I'll put a record and I'll just be flat on my back in my living room and, <laughs> yeah. and listen to it. Or at least I'll try to position myself so that I can really have all the frequencies right. in my ears and, and just have a nice listen, close my eyes, close all the lights right. and, and kind of right. deprive my other senses. So it's, you can really get listen to the yeah. song. And I get all yeah. the, the full the full sense of the uh, uh, stereophony. Stereophonic. Yeah, stereophonic. Yeah, exactly. But... I, I, also, I, should... I also listen to music uh, while I'm driving, and, yeah. and a, a, a lot of the stuff I listen to is uh, stuff. Let's say I'm I'm going to uh, uh, use record shop, right? And I'm I'm curious, and I'm buying all these CDs because you know they're cheap, and I didn't expect to pay oh three bucks for that. Yeah, I'll try that. I never heard that. I'm going to listen to that. And now, for example, I had I'm, I, I I fell in a in a punk rabbit hole, but more of the yeah. '90s, late '90s, early 2000 punk. You know, Pennywise and that. And so I'm buying three dollar CDs mm. just to discover compilations. Where do you buy them? I, I, like what's Le Change, for example, on is Mount that, Royal. That just burned. Did you see? Oh no, Le Change. Is, the, the, no, the, the one CD exchange. CD, that's on, oh, uh, that's on Belanger and uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it burned, but it moved actually. Right. Down, yeah, I saw a, it. Okay, a little yeah. more west, but there's not that many now. left now. The stores are. Few I think there's like between. four or five good ones in Montreal. Where you there's have a nice there's one called Paul's Boutique on Mount Royal. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, which still sells records and sees. I, I should just say quickly to describe mm -hmm. to our listeners that we're sitting here in Thierry's place and we're surrounded by vinyl and CDs kind of on all sides and, and a record player. And um, it's very much, a, this is very much a music aficionado's place, I think. Yeah, it's kind of a so, record, you know, or music fan. There, are li there must be thousands of albums. I'm well, thinking, I've got, right? three, if not hundreds. I, I've right? got 3,000, about 3,500 CDs. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, probably, Literally in front of us. Probably a couple right? of, you know, yeah. doubles in there, but not yeah. so many. And I've got a, Probably thirteen or fourteen hundred vinyls wow. total in in any style. It goes from classical to punk, hardcore, metal, to uh, uh, down tempo, trip hop, hip hop, uh, jazz, funk, any rock, classic rock, anything. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I, what I've found is that like we live in a world now where that I think you know I like to joke with my students. You know, um, I say, what do you do when you when you want to listen to music? 
pop open your phone and you pull it up on YouTube or whatever. And I'm like, I have to tell them like, well, when I was your age, I had to literally physically move my body to a store and mm -hmm. go and buy something mm -hmm. and bring it home. And then, and then half the album would be crap or whatever, you know, and they're all kind of laughing. They're like, Oh yeah, I guess you'd have to do that. And I sort of, I, I sort of think it's better now because I, I, I go on YouTube and I'm listening to like studio one stuff and listen mm -hmm. rabbit holes of reggae and old punk rock and stuff. I'm going to interview Chris Berry of the okay. 222. I don't know if you ever heard of no. the two. They were the first punk single recorded in the province of Quebec okay. in 1978, and he he went and he was in a Woody Allen movie and all this stuff. Okay. So you know, I want to do some prep. I just sure. go on YouTube and pull it up and listen to. It. I see him doing live stuff in uh -huh. 2010. I hear the 222s. I hear the groups he had in New, in New York and all this. And it sort of makes me think, well, it's so much more amazing now. But is there something special about having an album, the physical? You know, you have or a CD. I remember getting the CD and you'd open it up or the album and you'd pull it out and you kind of go, wow. And sometimes there'd be gimmicky things like the vinyl would be, you know, kind of a different color. You remember those? Or I clear? remember buying a four yeah. watt CD. There, there were like 3D glasses in the because the sleeve oh, yeah. was 3D okay. pictures on them, but yeah. 3D drawings on them. But yeah. Is there something unique about that? There's a physical object. Like, is there something we've lost in our world? I, I, I don't know. I was born in that era when i started listening to music there were no cds there were tapes and vinyls eight track that was a thing well yeah eight tracks too but you know minutes. we didn't have a eight track, yeah. eight track we, had a, we had we we had some records my dad had classical records and we had like felix leclerc and all that stuff and and there was a tape recorder there so that's what i started with and most of the stuff that was available was either tape or vinyl and mostly vinyl mm -hmm. vinyl right? was the way and, and I, I went yeah. to a place called sam the record man i remember right? sam. St. Catherine. St. Catherine. And, yeah. and, uh, and i went to a and a records and uh, yeah. and these were my and then dutchies which was more of the underground thing that's where eva bees is now right like i have it's, been a, there it's, in a, it's while. a clothing store on St. Lawrence, just yeah. up from Ontario, I, right? Or I guess down I, from. I don't remember exactly where it was. I remember, yeah. that we would go in and it was on St. Lawrence, right? Dutchies, I pretty was sure. I don't remember yeah. honestly. There was also a place, a second floor place called Mars. Mars, yeah. Remember comic, that where you go upstairs books, and there was these two uh, crazy. Yeah, they had yeah. comics and they had porn and they had all kinds of yeah, yeah. records and stuff. And there were these two brothers that ran it. Who one of them was just that he was half crazy or whatever. And he, you'd go in and you start talking about the music and he just start talking to you. you know, he wouldn't let you go, you know. But, I, I, I think I went there once or twice, Mars. But you know, it was second floor, right by like, Sam's, okay. like on that block by the bay there, you know, and all that. But is there, have we lost something? Is that maybe too much? Of a, is it? Or is it just? I, that, I, I don't know. I, I, I download music and I go on Bandcamp, for example, and I yeah. download music from there. And I some some music is free. Some music some music you have to pay for. Uh, and and I download stuff. And I, I use it, YouTube a lot. I, I put I, it on, oh, there's yeah. a lot of stuff on, and yeah. I have converters for YouTube. When I, whenever I right. like a song, I convert the, uh, I, I get MP3. the sound, the right. sound from the, the video, and yeah. especially when there's a show, you know, and, right. and I want to listen to it, and I don't want to have to listen to uh, YouTube on my phone. Right. I'll just download the sound and put it on my. I still have a little MP3 thing. So you can study it when you're driving around or yeah, I'm whatever. Just listening to something yeah. I enjoy, and I know it's not on record, right? So that's what I do. But other than that, I mean. I was I was born with this, and I, at one point I had like 350 records before I moved to Europe. I was in Europe for nine years in Hungary, but then I sold my collection, and I I went deep into CDs, mm -hmm. practical format. But I was still in the physical format of it. It's and still I, physical. And, and MP3s yeah. were not the big thing in the 90s, 94, yeah. 95. Yeah. It took a lot of you know. 
bandwidth and it was complicated napster was there you know yeah. it was a, yeah. a bit and in hungary the especially era. Yeah. It, it was very expensive to listen to le uh, electronic or dematerialized de music right so mp3s uh so i was still buying cd but then when i came back in early 2000 uh I, I i was still buying cds but as mp3s a bandwidth was b bigger and then i i started listening to that but i never got into the uh listening to one song i was always an album guy right. if i if i take if, if i buy an album i listen to the whole album and then i'll decide yeah. okay is the album worth keeping or not it, uh, did i buy this for one or two songs or did i buy it for the whole album and most of the albums i, I buy here are albums album. that i enjoy yeah. for yeah I, I enjoy all the songs on the album except maybe one or two it's the reverse thing it, it's two one or two songs that i don't like even right, on rush right. albums even so on rush 10 albums, hits and, and, or ten, uh, hits the wrong word no but 10 great songs and two pieces of yeah, junk it's probably pieces. like yeah. two or three hits yeah. and then and then eight great songs and then, and then like a couple two pieces of junk filler Phillips. Yeah. yeah okay yeah. and and that was more the case when they started you know, uh, CDs had CDs longer. With yeah, they music. had longer. Yeah, than an the, album. The, yeah, the, that's the, right. The labels yeah. asked the the artist to. to <laughs> you got to fill up the seventy five minutes or whatever. And I, I was quite <laughs> happy with the forty minute vinyl. You know, the Police. There were actually, if you listen to the the whole discography of the Police, there's it's really hard to find a bad song, or a song where you will not tap your tap feet. your feet yeah. on it on any album. And they only have five. Albums. Five, five, really? Five the albums, police. right? The police has five albums, and and that's it. Wow! And um, and then and then Sting went off and became a superstar in oh, yeah. his own right. Yeah, yeah that's own. interesting. Yeah, but he became okay. middle of the road. Actually. Yeah, no, but, I know. know. I, but yeah, big sex symbol and everything. And all but that. basically, I mean, back to the physical <laughs> format. I'm nowadays I'm buying a lot of CDs to discover. Right. It's very yeah. rare, unless there's a very specific jazz or classical CD, mostly jazz. On, on a certain on certain labels that I want, I'll buy buy them for sixteen or seventeen or twenty bucks, okay? Because I want the CD because it's important for me to keep that sound. I don't want to downgrade it to an MP3. Mm -hmm. I want the full spectrum. Um, I I buy three, four, five dollar CDs or two dollar CDs at the Renaissance, for example. If I found something that Oh, I, I've never listened to that. Artist. That whole album. I'm, I'm gonna. Right. I'm just gonna buy it and so, listen. So, to like, it. you'll you'll find like say like a Green Day album that you know a couple of songs are good. You want to check out what yeah, the rest exactly. is like. So you That's buy what I do. So I, I do my discoveries. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, through the internet, but a lot into. It's hard to I do know. albums on YouTube and internet and stuff. It's mostly you can it's, find you can it, find you, them, but it tends to be oh, I want to hear this, and there's a bunch of songs, a playlist, yeah. and so, stuff. So, so if kind of, you're yeah. album focused, yeah. it's better to go and, and dig, and you find great stuff for yeah. three, four, five bucks, and, or two bucks even, and sometimes one dollar. There's like you know, and but as far as vinyl goes, uh, I will. I, I bought some. I started buying vinyls. Uh, I started buying albums that I sold and that were kind of, I had some sort of, I was emotionally tied to them. You know, it's like, ah, the, the Rolling Stones. Okay, fine. Good music, but also memories. Rush, same thing. Then I had, you know, Split Ends, The Fix, all these 80s bands yeah, because I'm fix. A, Boy, I started listening to, to rock and pop music in the 80s, right? That's my age. I'm 53. Yeah. So, and then suddenly I started discovering, when I said I, I, I fell into some rabbit holes, recently I fell into the hip-hop, trip-hop, down-tempo, funk, groove. Wow. That's a very hole, specific. Okay? Yeah. And if, if, you, if you look, most of, most of the records that are on the floor right now, you're looking at. What you're at, listening to these uh, days, right? It's a, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a lot of groove, and it's very wide. Because, yeah, from hip-hop to drum and bass, 
and down tempo trip up and then there's the funk and then there's the lightly electronic funk then there's the and i i discovered artists and i discovered also artists and producers because now you're not talking about musicians in that world you're talking about producers like yeah. madlib for example madlib was producing he has his own records but he's producing records for other rappers nice. he's making beats he's creating beats so there's a beat maker the producer and then there's so I went and, and discovered a couple of their albums. There's Mad Lib, there's uh, uh, Quantic, there's... Uh, and then I started listening to what they were doing on their own and then listening to what they are doing with other mm. rappers and other people. And sometimes you have, you know, two producers playing, you know, putting out a record out. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes there are rappers who are also great music producers. There was a guy called Pete Rock, yeah. who was oh, yeah, a very have, good producer. Pete Instrumentals here. Lil Wayne. Couple CDs. Lil Wayne is an incredibly good producer of music. He's, he's also, you know, I don't know how good of a rapper he is, but uh, other rappers, I mean, you know, if you take Biggie Smalls, I'm not mm -hmm. sure he could produce any music, but he was just incredibly good at the vocal work. And the lyrics, probably. And yeah, the, uh, but the, the, if, 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 have you ever seen the video of Biggie Smalls from where he's standing on a street corner no. in New York or something, no. and he's like 18 or whatever, okay. and it's just like it's captivating. He mm. could he could stand on a corner and just rap, and you'd be like, wow, he, like he, it's he, just he could just do this thing somehow that would just be. And sometimes you know, some people are just really good at that. Mm -hmm. You know, well, uh, I, I don't know if you watched <laughs> the uh, the series Hip Hop Evolution. No, no, uh, yeah, it's uh, is that on it's Netflix? On, is that, it's on Netflix. Yeah, I, I, if it's still, there, I think I I've know, seen but, some of it actually. But it's exactly yeah. that the MCs, <clears throat> the the role of the MC besides you know. With writing the rapping, lyrics and yeah. rapping is also to animate, you know, to to captivate, to catch, to control, almost, you know, to to the party. Just, they create the mood, yeah, the right? Mood, yeah. And there's the beat maker that provides that backbone for that rapper, yeah. and 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 that's so that's why you have good ones and you have bad ones, and and you know, and you have spectacular ones that put up a show and you have other ones that are just there for the message. I don't know if you know Buck 65, but yeah. Buck 65 has yeah. a very Canadian different... Canadian rapper. It's, yeah, yeah. It's a rap, yeah. He's a rapper, but it's got a very different Isn't approach. He's from Halifax? Buck he's from Halifax. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. He has a very different approach. Yeah. You know? He's much more of a vocal, like he he doesn't do like a Biggie Smalls flow no. type thing. It's more the lyrics are really yes. intricate. A bit like Kendrick Lamar, I mm -hmm. think, in some senses, because there are these sort of like socially, you know, yes. uh, whatever yeah, lyrics. Yeah. And it's also the flow is not so, it's more like the messages mm -hmm. and the, you know. That's it. Are, yeah. That's it. So you have that kind of MC and then yeah. you have the party MC and then, exactly. So, but that's what I'm discovering now. And, and So you're getting into rap music now a lot. Rap, like, hip hop. Right? Yeah. Uh, honestly, I have a, I'm, you know, I, 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 I could I could easily go instrumental with all these things, but it's interesting because I've I've learned to discover, you know, to to understand, to discover, and to appreciate flow. Mm. Uh, it's lyrics. a very hard thing to understand what the flow uh, is. It's uh, a, it's and even to describe. I'm not sure I could describe what good flow I, I is. A, you know? Before that, I uh, had a very simplistic view of rap. You yeah, know, you can say, yeah. "Oh, rap, yeah, that voice." You know, yeah, they're all the just using the N word and, and everything and all yeah. that. Yeah, and, and then why can I use that word? Oh, yeah, I'm white. Okay, yeah. Separate discussion. No, you're right. Joke, first of all, yeah, it's yeah. a bad joke. <laughs> I know, but but basically, well, it's no. also true. <laughs> just to, to be clear, right? anyway, yeah, I know you but, want to get back to the music, but uh, yeah, the the idea is, not, and and the funny thing is, I start, 
I started with vinyls. Then at one point, there's this guy I, I shop at. There's this little shop called Saint-Catherine-Gamme, and, and the guy is really into it and knows everything about it. He's been, he's been collecting and selling that stuff for, Where is for it? years. Where is it? De Lorimier and Des Carrières. It's a little coffee shop right okay. by the yeah. I don't know. There's a gas, gas there's station. a gas station right Yeah, there. no, I know that corner. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so basically, at one point, he, he got two or three bags, actually four bags of CDs. <laughs> and I said he bought this from a guy who's like just getting rid of his collection. But he said, right. you got to look at that. There, there are gems in there. You might. Okay. And, and and so I go, I start looking through them. And, and most of the names I know, but not the music. And I go, okay, do you have time? Could you spend half an hour with me and going through these, these CDs? And I want you to make me a list of what I should really listen to. Mm. This is all rap and hip hop music. Yes. In, in those. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, okay. we spend right. an hour together, and he got he, he has this like fifty CDs. <laughs> and I, then I go, okay, I gotta I gotta scale down a little bit. So he goes, okay, do you want discovery or want classics? So I go from all this, I want discovery. So he just cleared twenty CDs, and I had a pile of thirty CDs. I paid him cash, and then I went home and I listened to all these CDs. What were they? One Did in a row. I, I, uh, oh man! <laughs> but like this is old rap from the eighties and nineties, right? Eighties, nineties, yeah. and early. Any tone loke in there? Just tone loke. Not I even. Yeah, I already, no. I already had it. I, I know you're. I've seen you put up tone loke as a yeah. like. I know you're. Yeah, in and I have, to, I have his stuff is great. Yeah, uh, that's a but, separate um, thing. You know, things you have wealth. Wu Tang Clan, right? Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I, I knew the name. I didn't know the music. Well, it, it was it was a huge group. Yeah, yeah, the Wu Tang yeah. Clan of like it's like you know DMX yeah. or whatever. Like all these that's guys. It. And uh, so you yeah, have Dre things. was involved. I that's think, it. in that. Right? So all these names that are interrelated. And he would explain to me, okay, this guy was playing with that guy, and this CD was came after this, and you can see this is West Coast, this is East Coast. So I started not only listening but going on 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 the web and getting information yeah. and so that yeah. when i say rabbit hole mm, i took those yeah. 30 cds right. and i educated myself on rap <laughs> wow and and that's, that's when that's i well, from what i understand maybe you can i'm not confirm ocd this, but, but yeah not, i'm close to maybe it. maybe you could confirm this what i heard because I, one of the things we've we've seen over the you know in the 2000s let's say in this century is a return to singles just mm -hmm. you know and what we see now is like individual songs and now most of the big artists what they do is they they, they're, first of all, there are very few groups now. It's like artists, and they usually work featuring this other person. Yes. And apparently, and so that's the common thing. So you have, you know, Chris Brown featuring so and so, and Pitbull featuring whatever. Yep. And I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I don't actually mind it. I mean, I'm not. It's sort of because there's a lot of good music there too. But I, as I understand it, that goes back to the Wu Tang Clan, which was this huge group. I heard this described by some musicologist or something some years ago, and they couldn't. It was, it was like these like. 10 or 15 different rappers who all became these superstars mm -hmm. and they couldn't it was too big of a group to really work together like they were kind of there were too many of them and then they all went off and made their own mm -hmm. careers they couldn't agree on you know the contract thing of how they were going to get paid that's what usually happens to these groups so they all start arguing Again, over I money guess. and who's going to be the top dog who's going to get them you know that's kind of the Eric B and Rakim they ended up nearly killing each other at one <laughs> point you know I mean Mick Jagger and Keith Richards too right. were fighting all the time but that, I heard that that was the origin, was the splitting up of the Wu-Tang mm -hmm. Clan was kind of the origins of this sort of individual artist as a... It could, it could yeah, be, uh, you know. Because, well, even before Wu-Tang, you know, LL Cool J had his own personality and it was his, his own man, really. Yeah. But it, and it was not a group. But, but 
There were always individual I, rappers. Not, I didn't I've mean not, to suggest, I'm but really, like I, I can't. I don't, the only rap group I can think of now is a group called Migos, which are actually okay. really good. They're, they're they're a group of three. They're like brothers and cousins. Mm -hmm. There's three of them, and we saw them at the Bell Center mm -hmm. a couple of years ago with Drake, and they're they're like vocally like mm -hmm. excellent, really good. And that's an unusual thing, and that's only because they're related. I think. I think they. I think they came up. They, by the way, the center of rap music now is Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, that's that's, a, that's a new. Thing. New York, around. most of the rappers that they're from the South now, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. to me is really interesting because I have a theory that all the popular music over the past sixty years comes from the U.S. South, right? So, like you know, like so it Anything branches else. out, it turns into rock and roll, and then the, the, the Jamaicans started copying it, they made like reggae, and, the, South, and yeah. then you get the British invasion, yeah. which comes from, and so you see that the rap music is now in the U.S. South again, which it makes me think it's kind of like a return to the homeland or something where it yeah. all began. It's a bit of a yeah. Well, the, you the, know, the, if, you, if you listen to <clears> Dallas and Atlanta are the big centers uh, now for rap, but sorry. Yeah, yeah no, but yeah. that's and and basically, you know, rap maybe started somewhere. It's probably New, New York. York started in New York, but yeah. then it moved yeah. around and what well, exploded and, onto, and then it, yeah. you know, people. I, I don't want to say that rap is confined to the U.S. South. I mean, there are great no, 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 rappers no, no. from other. Not. Yeah, I just mean the most. Yeah, it starts in rap New York. I mean, New York City, yeah. the Bronx, Block parties, and, and, and yeah, and, and yeah, seeing over over DJ finals. Cool Herc. I'm sure yeah. you bumped into him, yeah, and you're <laughs> oh, yeah. he was a Jamaican immigrant, yeah. by the way. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah, it. And, uh, you know what? I actually. Um, there's a, a guy from New York who came up, and I, I I learned that when I was shopping CDs at that little shop there. Uh, it's not CDs, but vinyls. But there's a guy from New York who came up to Montreal and saw that there was a scene, but it was disorganized. So he helped organize it. Really? And they're actually making a they're they're making a documentary about that. I don't know cool. when it's coming out. Nice. But the the origins of you know the block parties in Montreal and how it was. So organized happened, yeah. by a, a New York guy, and he was actually he was in the coffee shop when I was shopping. And I was like, oh, yeah, he's, you met him. Well, I didn't talk to him. He was there when he was talking with the with the producer and the, the filmmaker. So this there. is an American guy, who a, a had New York come guy up, who came up right, to Montreal in the late seventies. Right. Yeah, came up here and and started organizing block parties. Oh, interesting. And, but there was all there yeah. were already artists here, so they're making a documentary about that, That's and they're 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 going to put these uh, the the origins of montreal based block parties hip-hop things really and cool. yeah i can't yeah. wait for that thing but there's a there's a book that's out that's l'histoire du hip-hop au québec or les origines right. du hip-hop yeah. au québec yeah. part one so there's going to be a part two but it's very interesting to know that then and already in the seven, late 70s there was something going on in montreal it mm -hmm. just needed organization and of course it came with a u.s guy that came up and said okay that's what we're doing in new york let's do this and let's do that <laughs> Well, I mean, it, just to, I mean, it, in, New, in New York, I, I did a podcast recently with a, an expert on punk and reggae. Mm -hmm. So he, 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 this guy, he's in Windsor, Ontario. And mm -hmm. He's been, anyway, so he knows all about Studio One and everything. And he talked about how that, like DJ Cool Herc, like that idea was actually a thing in Jamaica, like way back oh, yeah, in the, the 50s. And he described how they would have a sound system mm -hmm. and it was all on competition. They would have like four artists like it would be like a square mm -hmm. baseball maybe a cricket field i suppose and each dj would be in each corner and they would literally compete for the people in the middle of the like they would be, he would be the coolest selector of records and That's all it. this stuff and so right. i mean like to say i mean you could even make a case that rap music begins in jamaica in some senses i mean yeah you know just a seed there's a there's a cross fertilization going on with yeah, the no. american uh, i mean where things begin is a little bit i mean you know 
I don't know. I mean, it's this is this is the whole the stupidity of what we were talking about cultural appropriation. Mm. To me, is just the most asinine thing I can imagine because the greatest artistic movements in history are usually when people get together and they're like, oh, wow, you're doing it like this, like the, you know, the Jamaican immigrants in England, you know, making ska and then they're mixing with the punk rockers. They're kind of hanging out yeah. together and doing, no, oh, no yeah. No complains you know. about right? classical being emulated by rock musicians, you know, because it's white on white. Right, you know? right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's but, yeah, there's uh, some weird know, again, thing when you cross the racial. It's so stupid. And it's I mean, so it's just, interesting, it's, yeah. But, you yeah. know, blues, then rock and roll, but then jazz. Yeah. What is jazz, you know? It's also, a, it was, bluegrass music. If, if yeah. you listen to Elvis Presley, Pres people say, oh, it's just black. It's not only that. You listen carefully to that early mm -hmm. stuff. You can hear a lot of the... The, the the sort of stereotypical white mm. kind of music from the U.S. South yeah. is also has a very rich yeah. tradition, you know. That, Absolutely. You know, uh, and so the idea that it's racialized to me is just, I, you know, I don't really understand how to think about that. I, I, it, you I, know. I like Keith Richards' view on this. There's yeah. no, it's only music, man. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Know, the way you would say it, yeah. it's only music, man. <laughs> well, he also but, insists uh, he's just a copy of these blues artists, which always struck me as sort of false modesty. I, I don't know. I mean, ah, is, well, you know, is let's he leave that yeah. mystery to him. I yeah. don't know. You know, what he, you can say whatever he wants. When you listen, to, you know where he comes from. That's you know, true. You know what his passion is, and he didn't have this this blockage. You know, in terms of oh, I, I can't play this because a black guy did it. He said, I, I like it. I will it play. Sounds it. great. That's a very interesting thing that you mentioned about the. I I had never really thought of it as the British musicians were, didn't have any hang-ups about race, right? They, they had no, I mean, well, not as many anyway. There was, truly, there must have been racism in the UK not, as not well. That, not right? that yeah. generation. Yeah. And there, there was also, there's no southern UK with a whole segregated system going on. No. The, Jamaica was a separate, uh, although Jamaica was a colony. Um, I'm not sure how, yeah, wow, you're really making me think. This is what happens when someone yeah. puts an idea like that in my head. I start going off in these directions. I don't make any sense, right? Because my brain just kind of, you know. Yeah, no, that's, I'm really, I'm, I'm really impressed. You know, I want to say that you, you went, you've gone down on this, this rabbit hole of rap music. It just shows, to me, it shows a great deal of open-mindedness, uh, you know, because I think a lot of people of your age who hadn't, like, I, I'm only three years younger, but I started listening to rap music when I was in my teens mm -hmm. and everything. And I, I've been into it all my life, but I know you were not so into it. Well, right? it's, rap to me know. was Public Enemy, Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, and Tone Loke. That right. was rap for me in the, in the <laughs> yeah. 80s, right? Late okay. 80s. Yeah. That, that was you see, rap. in the 90s, I was all into all kind of like the Pete Rock and Arab B and Rock him. And I was, I was like, you know, I had I albums know and that. stuff and like, you know. Like two years so, ago, I didn't know these names. Right. Two years right. ago, I had no clue. Pete Rock, Jay Dilla, you know, Dilla and stuff. I, I bought a, I bought his uh, biography there just to understand what this guy was all about because he died like, he died young, and but yeah. he produced so many albums. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. what do you think about the really big '90s rap like Tupac? And I mean, do you like that stuff? Because I, 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 at the time, I like I was into it really in my late teens or early twenties, and then in, in the later '90s, I kind of absented myself from mm. kind of new music. So I knew it was going on, but I was kind of not really into it. But now I listen to Tupac; it's like it's so amazingly good. I, I you know, I have, I think I have a couple of albums, but it's part of that. Collection that I got, and thirty CDs. Where oh, one I'm of them was a Tupac them, record. Discovering yeah. them, but and and yeah. uh, you know, uh, Biggie Smalls, yeah, the and, big fat guy, Notorious Big, and the yeah. B.I.G. And, yeah, that's Biggie Smalls. And well, uh, I, I, and 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 so I, 
Not really. I just listen to them to get an idea of the sound, but mm. I, I you're not really I, I not into go, it. I didn't yeah. get into it. But the I, mm. the thing is, in '94, I left. I left you Canada and I went to Hungary, and right. I came back in 2003. Okay. And yeah. and I, when I came back, I, I wasn't into. I was listening to music, but I I was not on a di discovery path. I was just you know listening to music, but I was much more into jazz, going to the jazz mm. fest, discovering. And, and some Hungarian that. folk music you must have learned about a little bit. Oh, yeah. Right yeah. when you were in Hungary, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, I lived in Slovakia. There's gypsy music, yeah. there's the Hungarian folk music, which is different. And then I got into Hungarian pop and rock and metal music there, yeah. uh, which when I arrived in 94, you know, there was... It's kind of funny because I bought some tapes just to get familiar, and they were like twenty years, twenty behind, years back yeah. behind, <laughs> and, and as far as styles go. That's hilarious. But then they yeah. picked up really fast. quickly, and they picked yeah. up fast as they did in the '60s. Hungarian rock was, you know, a little bit like Quebec was doing. You know, they were taking rock songs and just translating the, oh, the yeah. lyrics. Doing and, a bit French, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they were yeah, like, yeah. A, yeah. you know, yeah. doing a Beatles song in French. Or I should say, when I lived in Slovakia, I remember seeing a couple of gypsy musicians on the street who were geniuses. Yeah. I remember I remember a guy I used to see on my way to work in the morning who was a very dark scene. He must have been from Eastern Slovakia because they in you know that there's a in Slovakia and this is probably true in Hungary as well, in the eastern part of the country, about ten percent of the population mm -hmm. of Slovakia is gypsies. So same thing in Hungary. Uh, yeah. So in the eastern part they're very dark and they're more mm -hmm. you know, ghettoized or whatever. In the West they tend to be more integrated. But this guy played violin and it was just captivating. It was just and he was just there on the corner, you know, and you think what's and I remember thinking like we're right near Vienna here. Like, why doesn't he go to Vienna and get a job? Like, he's good enough. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, he probably doesn't know how to read. You know, he probably, you know what I mean? He, he wouldn't want to be in an orchestra. Yeah, and, you know what I mean? I'd be telling him what to do. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, you know, it's he, like right? We don't, we, <laughs> and, and I know it's a music show, but we talked about race and racial. Yeah. Racial. Yeah. There is a racial. Element. There is there yeah. is a big racial thing in Austria as well. We, we tend to think, you know, proper vienna and this, yeah. know, it's it's a so there's a, yeah that, that's another feature he'd probably face racism trying to do they might not hire him anyway no how he's, good he's he is labeled. right yeah as a, he's a gypsy musician yeah so he's good but he's he's a gypsy. not a classical yeah. musician right. he's right. a gypsy yeah. musician yeah yeah and, and I, I remember being stunned at how good he could play this guy i, I remember i used to because i remember going to work and several times i'd walk by and sort of get lost just, just listening i always gave him money i was always throwing as much as i had change in my pocket and one time i was so lost listening to him that one of my friends was there and he like I, you know hey jason jason he had to call me like five times i was just completely in another world listening to this guy play you know and it's interesting how you could see brilliant musicians i remember a guy in paris once who played in the metro this uh, black guy playing this thing and this guy was on, it's like a little, it's an African instrument. Because I went up and talked to him. I was did like, play, did he play like this? Uh, no, no, he had these, okay. it was these things that were like these, it was called a malufa. Okay. Because I, I went and talked to him when he was taking a like, break. I was I like, know, you know. Which is like a No, it was a, it was a, it was a rhythmic thing. And he, he said it was a malufa or malufa or something like that, you know. And and I was like, everybody walking by. That's how you can tell a good street musician. Is people walking by will stop and they'll be like, mm -hmm. they'll turn their heads at least. You know, you'll see. I remember watching him play, and there was a couple of cops on the other side of the platform, and they were moving their hands, kind of go look at what he's doing, <laughs> you know, right? You know, this, and 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 so every once in a while, that's a, that's a great experience of music for me is seeing a great street musician playing. Mm -hmm. Is what you know. And uh, a couple of times in Chicago, I saw a number of um, two black guys. One was tap dancing, uh -huh. and the other guy had an upside down um, uh, rubber made drum, just playing it with yeah. drumsticks. And it was just 
captivating. Mm-hmm. I mean, you it's amazing what you can do with an upside-down Rubbermaid thing if you know what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's an interesting separate thing. I um, I, I think on, um, on the next time we meet, maybe you can talk more about your – because I want to do it more on Quebec identity. Mm-hmm. And you could talk more sure. about your, your um, time in Hungary, how that might relate. Yeah. I think that might be interesting. But – um, for now, I want to, as we close, because we're getting, you know, been going a long time. Um, the one thing I wanted to talk about was um, music here in Quebec. Like, what what does that mean to you? And what, you know, and there's a few things I just, um, sorry, I've been talking a lot, but mm-hmm. I, I want to set this up. Uh, when I lived in Slovakia and then I lived in Korea, I remember I would get homesick sometimes, mm-hmm. right? So um, and one way to feel close to home is to listen to music from mm-hmm. home. So there were two artists that really um made you know made me sort of cry in the bathtub listening to them um uh, Fortin, that was one who i yeah. just adore yeah. uh brilliant artist and leonard cohen mm-hmm. uh, another uh, different languages different cultures mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. quebec artists and le répandeur you know that song uh from les colloques yeah les colloques you yeah. know and it's like and and so i just i mean the lyrics in that are very specific to montreal you know like because he you know, the, the middle of winter when he would describe the streets being all filled up with snow and then the noise mm-hmm. of the tractors. Like, mm-hmm. and, there's, and there's something about, you know, he was a very depressive yep. person, obviously, but there's yes. something, there's a deep sort of pain and depression in that that I think can exist when it's minus 20 and it's dark and it's cold and you go outside and it's like there's these huge machines that are taking the snow away. <laughs> and yet I miss that. I miss how I get now, like I feel at home, even though it's like, oh, it's winter, it's cold, but I feel better in some weird sense. And it's, I, it's, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know. I do what you mean. Although, for me, you know? for me yeah. you know, snow removal machinery was like a party for me. I was watching that as a kid. And I was thinking, oh, nice. It is pretty amazing. You know, it's a good yeah. thing I'm not in that snow. Yeah. But, uh, but, it is amazing to watch them doing yeah. it, like with all the, yeah, the, the mechanics but, uh, of it. Yeah. Going back to, to what it meant, when I was in Hungary, for I was there for nine years, and then I remember going through the bins you know cd bins and and sales and and i i i'm i'm i i found this record this double cd from rabash al lebois la maudite tournée oh, which which is when he used yeah. to own he was he was the one of the original owners of unibahu yeah. you know the brewery yeah, yeah. and it, it he's obviously he was still great, an owner and yeah. he used the same logos and same same aesthetics for that tour it was called la maudite like the beer oh, la maudite tournée okay. wow. And so he had all the hits on there. (laughs) That's so cool. What what is it doing this? Here, it's in Hungary. Who's going to buy this? (laughs) And then I answered my own question. I answered my own question. I bought it. But... But before that, I had some friends because I, I left. And before I left, I had a, a party with some friends. And I was leaving for, for at least two years. So my mm. friends were like, hey, good luck, blah, blah, blah. And I remember when I was there, I I, I had brought my radio, but I didn't I forgot to didn't bring, bring tapes, any, music. any yeah. tapes. So I got I a, brought music I got with a, me when I went full, away. Yeah. A full envelope from one of my friends who still I, I rehearsed with him the, this, this Monday, a full envelope of tapes. And there was Le Colac in there. And there was, of course, Tragically Hips and oh, and, yeah. and, and some of the, the They're stuff. not really Quebec artists, but they're Canadian. It's, and they're huge in Quebec, too. Yeah. They were, uh, they were, they were they huge. Were, I mean, and they were huge among French Canadians, which I always thought. That's something I forgot to ask you about Rush, the Canadian connection. Oh, but, man. Yeah. They were that's, big. Yeah. That's there, was a, there, there were <clears> bands, especially Rush. Tragically Hip, yes, maybe. But I haven't. I, 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 I my Francophone friends were I haven't, huge into Tragically Hip. Yeah. They were, you know, they, they were more than me. I liked them. I, you know, they're good. I haven't. You know, live their 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 
kind of bridging years. I, I, I saw them in Oceaga, and most of the people were English-speaking. I, okay. yeah. I think that they this lost... This was 90s. This was in the yeah, 1990s, the, when they the would 90s. tour. They would come here and That's tour it. all through Quebec and everything. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know. and Rush was also one of those... Huge you know, in French Canada as and, well. And they yeah. were bringing the two sides together. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it's... everyone was friends during a Rush concert. Yeah. And after that, they would say, ah, La Loi Saint-Hurre. And then they would say, La Loi Saint-Hurre, 101 or 401. Yeah. You know? Mots bloke. Mots bloke, yeah. yeah fucking frog. And, whoops, sorry. Yeah. I swore on your okay. podcast. Yeah. But, it's all right. Uh, it but basically, matter. yeah, it's, to me, it was, it was before I left to Hungary, it was more of a, what my parents were listening to, mm. which is Felix Leclerc and Leo Ferré. Very old, Ferre, uh, sort of chanson, as you yeah, said, right? That, yeah, right. And yeah. I was not really into this, but I, but you when I it. was in high school, some of, some of, because I was a nerd in high school and right. there were, there were the cool people and I was a nerd and the cool people were listening to Genesis, right. Supertramp, Harmonium. And, uh, and Baudamash, right? Baudamash, okay? of course. And, uh, and great, I was yeah. not into that. I thought it was sissy uh, or it was boring. And I was into, at that time, I, I, I was getting into Iron Maiden and Slayer and King Crimson. And I was also starting to get into more of the jazz things. And so mm -hmm. at the end of the... So no Quebec music at all? Not the, really. Or Canadian music, except for Rush. Not you were really. into Rush, I, you know, right? I, yeah. I, was listening you know. to, I was listening to Richard... Not Richard Desjardins. What's his name? Uh, Richard Seguin. Mm -hmm. But because he was on the radio. But I, some, I liked some songs, but I never bought an album. And then... It's really by going to Hungary and feeling homesick, like right, you described right, your experience. Yeah. That's interesting. Where I, 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 was, yeah. I, I was happy to get those So you bought tapes. the Charlevoix album. I found the Charlevoix tapes, there, yeah. and I found the right. tapes there, and I was like, oh, there's a little feel of you know, home. I, and it, just listening to that brought me back home in my mind, because I, I, I was there, and I was there for two years before I ever came back here. Right, so I right. stayed quite a few... So that's a long time when you're in your 20s, I suppose, yeah. at that oh, point, yes, right? Yes, 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 yeah. Yes. Um, do, do you think that's a language thing? Because that Charlebois specifically, uh, for me, Leonard Cohen too ties me to Montreal mm -hmm. in, a, in a way that's hard to explain mm -hmm. because his lyrics are not uniquely, you know what I mean? Like, like uh, you know, Dede Fortin is talking mm -hmm. about these things directly connected yes. to Montreal, but there's something about Leonard Cohen, his whole, uh, you know, kind of, you know, vibe and everything. Mm -hmm. That I can't imagine him coming from anywhere else than Montreal. Like, I don't know why I think that. I can't, I can't really put a finger on that. You know, when, and back then um, I did not understand that from Cohen, and now yeah. I do. Interesting, because I'm yeah. much more involved in the city than I used to be. When I came right. back from Hungary, I was a busybody. I was a sales guy. I was flying all over right, the place, right. and I was selling. Now stuff you're more grounded. I'm right? more grounded. Yeah, I have right. nice schedules. Yeah. I'm teaching now, and and so I'm grounded, and I'm going out, and I'm I'm feeling and breathing, and and seeing so the there's city. something in the air here that is it's seeped into Leonard Cohen. Maybe yeah, I is think that so. maybe one way to I think, think so. about it? That, I think so. And the, and and even to articulate what it is, it sounds like you and I. Because I, I, you know, like, could we even de describe what that is? I'm not sure that I could. I don't, you know, it's, it's something. You know, I would you put know. words on it. You would put words on it, and then someone else would say no. No, it's uh, wrong, and they I, have some other theory. That's my yeah, and then yeah, whatever. But right. and it, I think it's better like this. You leave. Let's leave the magic alone. And you you listen yeah. to Cohen, and you have to yeah. kind of uh, yeah. You know. Well, there's a few. I mean, you could get into some specifics. First of all, he's Jewish. Um, which is very important in Leonard Cohen's life. Absolutely. People, there's a there's a new book out now. I don't know if you've heard about yeah, no. this. 
Um, I, I want to get, I haven't read it. Uh, Russ Roberts, uh, an economist, I mm -hmm. listened to interviewed this guy. Leonard Cohen was living in Greece in 1973 mm -hmm. when the Yom Kippur War broke out. Oh. And he, for reasons that nobody knows, he heard it on the radio. He packed up his bag and went to Israel and he wanted to help in some way. Okay. So, yeah. And it's, and it's sort of weird because Leonard Cohen, anyone who knows anything about him, was this Buddhist and he wasn't into any sort of tribalism or anything like that, right? And he was sort of ashamed later on when he talked about mm -hmm. this, how he felt this weird compulsion oh. to go with his people, like his, you know, his tribalistic affiliation. And he went there and he toured, like he went, tours the wrong word. He went around to the troops on the front lines with a guitar and played these little shows in front of the soldiers to try and help, like as a, you know, mm -hmm. and none of these are recorded. He just did this yeah. as a, you know, and it's like, this is so fascinating to me. So that's maybe one way. There's also, in some of his lyrics, I, I hear a lot of references to, um, Jesus and religion in some of this stuff that makes me think the deep Catholicism that's inherent to mm -hmm. Quebec's history Which might, is also, have, yes, exactly. might have marked him. You know, see, growing up here in the 40s, that would have been in the 50s, oh, yeah. that would have been just you oh, know, yeah. uh, the way that everything was. The squadrons of nuns and everything, even though he wasn't Catholic himself, mm -hmm. it must have. And just the, the, the beauty of all the religious buildings, I so think many maybe churches here. Yeah, you know, yeah. like maybe, and that that sort of somehow got into his bones. I don't know. That's just those are Could theories, be. right? I mean, it's Could very be. but hard he to had know. He, he had to have this. He had a relationship with the Catholics and yeah. the French. He was bilingual. Anyway. Yeah, that's so, right. And but, he was a big promoter of the French language yeah. and of you know all that so stuff. Just even. that yeah. makes him a, yeah. makes him Montreal. Yeah, if you want to say true. so, because you can't you can't put Leonard Cohen. In either community, in New York, or, you know, and yeah. say that. Oh, I see. Know, yeah, talking yeah. about Catholicism in New York and or the French language. Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. right. It is typically Montreal, <laughs> but you couldn't put him in Toronto or even no. another Canadian city. He's very specific to Montreal. David Fortin, on the other hand, was from very far away. I think Saguenay Lac Saint Jean, yeah. I believe, and mm -hmm. he was. Um, you know, like me, he came to the city as a young person, even though I don't know if David Fortin had roots in Montreal. I had, my mother had grown yeah. up here, so I did have some connection to the city, but, um, I do, I, I do have many of my closest Francophone friends are people who came from smaller towns. Mm -hmm. That's a thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether that, we sort, I don't know whether that was something we both shared in common. Like one of my best friends, Sylvain Show. Uh, grew up in um, uh, Rivière Zulu, for mm -hmm. example, and uh, he was, uh, you know, and other friends from Three Rivers, other places. Yep. But yeah, so I don't know whether that affected his music. Um, that very, you know, he was very much more a real Quebecois. You know, you know, he was a separatist and everything. Yeah, yeah. Cried absolutely. After the referendum, yeah, and all uh, that stuff. This, uh, yeah, that you know. Mm -hmm. I don't know yeah. whether that affects his music in any way, or if it's just, yeah, I, I don't know how to fit that in. You know, you know, I, I I know the hits. I had an album, uh, but I never got. I never took yeah. the time to get into I, yeah. in, into the yeah. band. But he, he, the guy had charisma, and people were attracted That's right. to him yeah. and to the band. And to, and you're right. I, I, I was magnetic. Think, I don't think there's a band yeah. that took over except maybe for Les Cowboys Fringants who have this. They've kind of become attraction. yeah. They yeah. See, you see yeah. what I mean? Yeah. But not. It's they not don't have same. anywhere near the originality. No, no, that's I don't what I'm think. saying. Yeah. They resemble. Know. And yeah. the, the energy around it resembles, and people are attracted to that. But well, also, I, yeah. I believe that because it's because the Colloques don't exist anymore. They felt that they... Well, it, I think what you're saying is interesting, because I think the Colloques were, were um, 
kind of one of the original groups that sort of do this hybrid, like they, they, they would take like blues and mix it with Quebec folk music, oh, yeah. right? They, like that was a thing. They, they were, it seems like they were the first ones to do that. Like the Cowboy Fran, yeah, that's kind of their thing. That's become a whole genre of music in Quebec, right? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, like, you know, the, the, it's kind of the mixing rock with rockabilly yeah. with... Because uh, there were know, bands mixing, right? like Malicorne, for example, that was in the 70s. I've never heard of that. Malicorne, and, yeah. uh, and there were other bands. That were doing uh, that before the. They were mixing folk and, and rock, and but it was not fest. I, I don't know if it was festive or not, or it was as popular. I think it was popular. Kolak were huge. Kolak I mean, became yeah, huge. They were big. I mean, they were yeah. like they were super. You know, what was that famous one with the reggae beat that was their huge oh, yeah. hit? Um, uh, da, 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 yeah, uh, or whatever. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, there's Passmoil Puck. That's the rock one. Right. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But the reggae one. But I think it's the. I think it's more the lyrics rather than the music. I think the mm. lyrics were the people were identifying Connecting themselves to that. to that. There were stories about. So, yeah, That's and, true. and there was yeah. stories about you know, buck. I mean, day to like, day to day yeah. stories, but behind <laughs> right. that, there was also the kind of the struggle of the uh, the little people in there and yeah. people would identify and that's that. embodied by day to day in some senses yeah. right the yeah. kind of the day to day yeah. struggle uh, and, and yeah you could feel this this gray thing around him mm. and the lyrics the, the deep depression it was never but, yeah. completely happy it was festive but there was always something dark or gray mm. in the lyrics and then there and but the the, the Quebec soul and the Quebecer soul mm. is Somehow there's always not nostalgia, but there's always something like sad. There's, yeah. there's a little sadness, yeah. or a little there's sadness, fear. There's uh, there's uh, lack of self confidence. There's always that. I think that's know? I think that's so bang on. I could not. And uh, I, I think that uh, that yeah. that that the Koluk embodied all that. Yeah. But they yeah. made people feel okay with it. In a that's way. so interesting. That's yeah, and yeah, wow, you're blowing my mind because my friend who lives down the street here, Pierre Delon, mm -hmm. he pointed out that a feature once he just mentioned this in passing mm -hmm. that there's sort of a French Canadians or Quebecois or whatever you know have there's kind of a depression to the national identity, a kind of a sadness. All the things you described, he kind of mentioned that. I, remember, I thought a lot about that. I think it's very true. There's a and it's not clear to me why that is. I don't really understand. Is it is it some sort of thing to do with uh, being you know uh, maybe a you know the, the, the obvious thing somebody would say is oh well you know it's a it's a country that needs to be freed and so the people are you know kind of um, you know feeling uh, you know repressed or something of that and I, I don't know that that seems like an unsatisfying there's, explanation there, I think there's uh, but maybe I, that's just because I'm an Anglo <laughs> I don't know you know no, it's, uh, I think there's some it's confused in people's mind. I think it's not clear. Yeah. What are we? Yeah. Are we a majority yeah. or a minority? Yeah. Are we Americans? Are we Europeans? <laughs> are we born for a uh, born, uh, or are yeah. we born for, you know, let's stay small or can we be big? Uh, and, and it's funny. It's because an the ambivalence, answer, right? There's kind of, ambivalence. Yeah. There's yeah. lack of self-confidence, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. some Quebecers are doing very well internationally. Mm -hmm. And we can name the Soleil and there's Bombardier, no matter how bad they look when they get subsidies, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> or, you know, a billion dollars, and then they, they, they are given away to uh, Airbus. But anyway, yeah. but before they that... They should have kept the snowmobiles, man. <laughs> that's my but, idea. But, but that's anyway. what I'm talking about. Yeah. We can do that, Yeah. but a lot of the people don't believe that they can do that. And there's, I think that in the discourse, the only person that really... Uh, 
had that articulated that and said, we can do great things as René Lévesque. Mm. Because before that, it was always follow, follow yeah. the rules and listen to what the preacher says and the curé is, is right. And then, yeah. and then, and, and then it changed with the, 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 the quiet revolution, but it's to, in my mind, it's not over. Mm. It's not, the quiet revolution is not over until people have a sense that they can do great things. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting to me because I like I, I see you know when I, when I look at um, this entire era, it's it's very hard for me to understand why the story is told that way because there was enormous social and uh, cultural and economic development in Quebec before the Quiet Revolution, oh, yeah, possibly more. It's the only time in I think three hundred years that. Quebec grew faster than Ontario in, I, I, in all respects, like population, yeah. economy, everything. And and you see intense urbanization mm -hmm. at that time. So you mm -hmm. see people transforming from just among French Canadians. I'm mm -hmm. sticking with that. You know, people coming in from the countryside to the cities, Quebec City, mm -hmm. Montreal, and then and, and, and moving into industrial type employment and all that kind of stuff. And that's a, and, and there's enormous cultural shifts that go along with that. And so I don't understand why we're it's almost like the, the, there's, you know, when I first started learning about Quebec history, you know, I would learn about how, you know, the La Grande Moissard, it's called, you know, and all this that's... kind of stuff. And it's and I, I sort of, oh, yeah. And then I, and then, then we had Jean Lesage and then Lévesque and then everything kind of got better or something or blah, blah, blah. And I, I remember learning, oh, okay, that must be But that, it's very simplistic. It's very simplistic. And I don't think it captures, because there does seem to be a bit of more continuity. It plays, it than, plays to know. the boomers' discourse. Yeah, it's true. No, seriously, it's a great. I point. mean, the the, yeah. the boomers built it all. They started the world, right. and uh, now Quebec started. So Quebec boomers, became right? Quebec when the boomers hit the scene. And basically, so we right? refused to yeah. see anything good before, before that, then. But there was yeah. something good. There were bad things, and we all agree on this. But there were good things. I mean, nationalization well, of electricity, which well. is doing us yeah. very well now. It's I mean, it's it's doing. It's good for the yeah. province. It started you, in '44. Who was that's in right. power in '44? I think the guy's name was. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's uh, interesting because this is one of these things that you, my, you know, my my political views tend to be very libertarian, classical yeah. liberal, and I cannot figure out how electricity could be privatized and made. I can't understand how that could work better than what we have. Right. I, I honestly, I've, I've thought about this for years and I come back to that's one case where a government monopoly seems to actually have a good effect because there's a whole systemic structure. Mm -hmm. There's enormous capital investment. There's all this kind of stuff that's really hard to do. If you privatize it, it makes it, you know. So that was done during that time. Um, yeah. But as to the Deep Depression, you know, it's kind of like one of the great artists who seems to really capture that um, uh, deep uh, you know, everything you described is Plume la Traverse. Oh, yeah. Who I just love. Oh, yeah. Plume, Plume was singing the, uh, was singing le the people. He was singing to he, the he lower to, echelons. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And he was, but he was seeing the yeah. reality of this and he was hanging in the, he was having beers in Les Vais Stérilisés. That's his place oh, on, yeah. on, on saint -Tubert. Oh, yeah, that's where he drank. And, so, yeah. and, and yeah. this and, and uh, Taverne Cherrier on, on Saint-Denis. That, that was uh, back when it was Cherrier a tavern, Road. like back, the one on Rachel Street you're talking about. Oh, right? the Vais Stérilisés is on Saint-Tubert near, near Rachel. Rachel. Yeah, right. And yeah. Cherrier, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it's Pub Cherrier or whatever. It's With the beautiful what, neon. It's got an amazing neon. Oh, yeah, the Vais yeah, 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 yeah. So he was he was hanging out there, but he was singing those 
people's stories. Right, but he was right. there was always a layer, another layer to it, you know. When he's singing, uh, uh, le, 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 what's the song he was singing that uh, le, 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 la petite vingtaine et puis le gros taurieux. And then the, it's the story of that girl who's living with this sure guy and the one. sleazy guy and he's she's a oh, prostitute he's that bringing, sounds yes that sounds, he's that bringing, sounds familiar he's yeah. bringing cash to the yeah. rotario who spends oh, yeah. it in the bar and then and then there's yeah. going but he's basically telling a story of what's going on that we don't want to talk about yeah yeah we're embarrassed the 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 more the middle classes of people like if you're just talking in french canada the people who were you know the clerical classes mm -hmm. and the priests and all that kind of stuff they would look at this population and think oh god what a bunch of animalistic well, you know what i mean they're kind of the working class people with these those nasty who, habits those and, who stayed right, behind yeah. Yeah. let's call it like that yeah. the boomers you know they yeah. they studied they got big jobs they created these big institutions the ministry of this and this and then they got they got their positions and then yeah all the people that were left, left behind, behind blue collars people working in 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 uh manufacturers and 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 warehouses that were closing down yeah as we got closer to the industrialization right? yeah exactly yeah, and right, then becoming right. a, a service economy post-industrial and, and all these people left behind and what do they have to do they drink beer and they they mm -hmm. uh you know Here's a here's a perhaps a provocative question. How many of those sort of more working class French Canadians now have fuck Trudeau flags? Well, one of the one of the one of the most interesting things I saw during the whole convoy thing. This is something you mm -hmm. would might be hard for you to understand or accept even is I would see these guys going around the city in their pickup trucks. It'd usually be some, you know, 30-year-old francophone, kind of a typical working guy. He's got his own business or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he's clearly not, he probably doesn't have a university education. I'm not making a negative statement, mm -hmm. just pointing it out. And he'd have a Canadian flag on his truck. Yeah, I don't and, I, I, and I remember thinking, wow. And, and for me, as a person who was sort of sad in the 90s seeing this sort of like, you know, uh, the Canadian flag was associated with the sponsorship scandal and the government was trying to get people to wave them. And all of a sudden, this thing, and these people are doing this across the country and even among French Canadians. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting to me. And I, I don't know, I mean, I don't know what to think. Of. I, I personally think anything that's going to make us feel more together is probably a good thing in as much as I oppose separatism. Uh, but I'm also a great promoter of Quebec and its identity. So, and I, I'm a proud Quebecois at the yeah. same time. So I don't know how to fit all that in together. I don't know, you know? either. I, I don't even know if they so, understand what you know why. why I would say that I wouldn't underestimate the intelligence of, I, I of people know. like that. Like I, like I think that's been one of the problems. Has been well, they don't really know. My father says that oh, they don't know what it's like. How do you know that you don't know what they're you don't like? My father doesn't hang around with them. He doesn't listen to people like that. No, he doesn't I, know what I, they're I, thinking. You I know, have people so. like that in my family. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I base my I base my judgment on, on this, them. but yeah. on them maybe I shouldn't. But what I, what I what I hear is it's some. So you have some of these convoy fuck Trudeau people in well, your family. Not, not that they yeah. wear the stickers, but they uh, they support they certainly that. support yeah. that because yeah. they think that the system is is rigged or whatever, and uh, and they should everything should be changed. But you know we should get rid of the politicians, and uh, it's all a big farce. And whoever mm. you vote for, it's all going to be the same thing. And and, the, uh, and yeah uh yeah interesting so so i i i don't even know well, what what is it i mean is it is it like because basically the, the, this that movement seems to be 
a thing here and it seems to be connected to Trump and it seems to be connected to Brexit. Like not directly, but basically, I mean, up until the convoy, you would read these articles in, in, um, you know, newspapers about how Canada, we'd avoided the populist bubble. You read these in newspapers in, in, in Europe and everything. And then, and I remember every time I read one of those, I was like, that doesn't sound right to me. Something's wrong with that. You know, it sounds more like propaganda. Right. And and then the truckers hit and now all those journalists look like idiots because they don't, they don't, you know, Truckers like, were heroes two day, two years ago, right? Truckers what do you were mean? heroes. Yeah, right. Well, that's the other thing, right? It's like it's like two years ago they're delivering everything, and now they're supposed to shut up and just get vaccinated but, across the border, even if they don't want to, or you know, it's anyway. It's it's a it's a very well. You have to. I think the the analysis here is more of it. Yeah. What what is driving this force in the U.S. and it's the same thing here. It's some sort of a, yeah. a you know you're tired of a certain way of doing things. You're tired yeah. of yeah. not getting the results. You're tired of uh, there's cynicism. There's is, where does all that come from? I mean, because it makes me think like I like I don't know if the regular media was always this bad or like because when I sort of you know when I, when I when I look at like mainstream media stuff. And then I go and I learn about it separately. Now I'm not an anti-vaxxer or anything, but I'm I'm often amazed how bad it is. And I think, was it always that bad? Like, was it, or or has it gotten worse? As like, it, there's people like now we can get information from you know Joe Rogan and stuff, or, you know, or whatever. Like, there's all there's all. So it makes me think that the cynicism might come from just an exposure of something. It could it could be it was always like that, you know, and, and, and now we're seeing it more I, clearly. I don't think we had access to as much information as we have now since uh, I think that's true. 1998, 2000. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and even then, I think it's it's a very so recent. So some of it is more information. Now there's a lot of bad information too. Yeah. There's obviously a lot of, you know, people flatter and stuff. Yeah. But along with all that, you can also find things out that you wouldn't have been able to find out. And so, you know, it makes me think some of the cynicism too some of the cynicism I think genuinely comes from the pandemic really split things because there was this constant sort of like we must do this you know and then and then you know a month later like this is what we must do and it's proven by science and that's wrong but it was like wait a second you had it all proved a month that's ago it, you know and it's like the, the you know wait a second you know. the politicians are are uh, I'll try to relate that to music later on yeah no I know we're <laughs> off topic and we'll, we'll bring it back yeah well, no I, I know it's sidetracked I think the, but, I think the uh, politicians yeah. Are, are are guilty yeah uh, instead of being honest and saying okay that's right yeah. this is what I, we know now right. exactly and maybe that's going to change honest, and we don't know, we don't know right? because yeah. this is yeah. completely yeah. new and that's bear right. with us we'll keep you posted we'll be as transparent as possible but right now this is yeah. what we have and we are basing our, our decisions on this instead and they said this month, is right they said this is the received opinion if you oppose yeah. this you're anti-science that's or whatever it. and then next week that changes and right that's the, that's the other part of it yeah. right instead of they were decisive and they were sure of themselves even though they in their discourse but yeah. in reality they, they did not know what was going on <laughs> right of course right? How and could then they? i mean you know none of us and yeah. then they demonized the, the people side, who, yeah right so right. they antagonized yeah. demonized and split but that's also sometimes for some politicians i'm not saying that's the case there but it might be that you want to divide and conquer yeah and yeah. that's another thing and that well, i'm a i'm a cynic person yeah right? I, I can be I, very cynical and and i I have a tendency to think that there was there was something that's almost like do it done on purpose, right? 
I, I wonder if if Justin Trudeau was almost because he like when he's do when he's sort of making these accusations and demonizing part of the country, he's also being lauded by his base. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you saw recently. I'm going to bring it back to the music in a minute, but uh, <laughs> so I'll finalize with this. But he was going to go to the to the the, the Calgary Stampede. I don't yeah. know if you saw this. And so you think, why would Justin Trudeau walk into the lion's mouth and everything? And at first, and my first response was, I thought, wow, that's kind of ballsy of him to do. But then I then once I had that thought i thought maybe what he's trying to do he wants to do what his father did you know that famous thing where uh, pierre trudeau went and he and it was the saint jean baptiste and they were all pelting him and he stood there kind of you know defiant and strong and i wonder if that's what justin wants to do he wants to walk in there and they're going to be all screaming ah you know i represent all of canada and you can't scream at me or something you know i don't know but it could be but just the fact that we're talking about this and that we're thinking it might be this it might be that tells a lot about what we feel about this whole that's true game that's true. i call it a yeah. big game yeah. it's a big yeah, it game is. right yeah. <laughs> and 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 to me just watching these people play games like this with people's money people's lives people's yeah. livelihood uh, it it very a, very it leaves a bitter taste in my very mouth much. and i'm it's yeah. not left or right it's everyone everyone's yeah. doing this yeah. in quebec qs is doing this pq is doing this the liberals are doing this yeah. and the CAQ is doing this doing okay? this is doing this right they're Crazy. it's wedge politics it's uh, it's all that and and it's the same thing there and and uh, at the federal level so yeah. i'm watching all this and i say where's the common good in there what's mm. Yeah. Who are they representing, really? Who are they talking well, to? You know, and it's to bring it back to the music. Yeah. I mean, when I think about the plume la traverse, and he's uh-huh. he's speaking to a kind of a, a segment of the population that feels excluded, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they Absolutely. feel excluded from oh, yeah. from from oh, yeah. the general. And, oh, yeah. I, and I wonder, like, I mean, the whole trucker convo. I think that that sentiment is. We feel like we're being, I mean, if that's what I think it really is. And the Trump thing, too, but like, you know, think about like in, in, in the U.S. and the Donald Trump thing, it, all the people who originally voted for Trump in 2016, because those who voted in 16 and those who voted in 20 were quite different yeah. people. Interestingly, it's a very, well, that's a side thing. But the, those people, they were people who were generally poor. They, they were living in these deindustrialized states. They were yeah. typically white. And they were being told all the time that like, just shut up. You're a racist if you make any complaint. And then, like, my, my cousin just died of a drug overdose of opioids. Or, you know, I'm living in this crappy community where there's no jobs. And, you know, and, and then at the same time, I'm being told that I have privilege. Yeah. Like, it's like, what the fuck is that? doesn't make any yeah. sense. And I think that this convoy thing is a well, little bit uh... similar. There's kind of like, there's sort of like shut up. And you basically my when, at the time, I remember thinking, what it sounds like they're being told is, shut the fuck up and deliver us our mm-hmm. stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. So if we tell you to get vaccinated, you shut the fuck up and get vaccinated to get back when you come back from the United States. And if you don't want to do it, screw you, you can go home, you know? That's what I heard from were, people uh, in my family. Were, was, were, it know. felt like they were left out. Being marginalized. Being marginalized. Yeah, and it's interesting know? because... <clears throat> The same people are taking care of the marginalized, right? You're right. They're supposed to. That's that's the whole irony of it. Is there's supposed to be empathy for people who are marginalized, and yet yeah, but that no, group, because is, you know, because what? it switched from a class warfare <laughs> to, to race, race warfare. Yeah. God, and, what a disaster! And you know, it's like in a, yeah. in a class is so much more. And important. I, you know, I, by saying this, I I might be labeled as a you know white whatever. Okay, but nobody's my, listening I, anyway to my podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> Right. Who knows? You never know. But go ahead. I, and say I might it. take one person. Yeah, and I'm, I'm <laughs> you're canceled, right? But, but go ahead, take the chance, bro. It's a good Do thing. It, yeah. I'm not, I'm, I don't yeah. work in a university anyway. Yeah. So it's okay. But uh, um, 
Yeah. So basically, um, I lost. Oh, yeah. I lost what I you, you, said. But you, you were talking about marginalization, that. Yeah. and you were talking. What is? Yeah. What is? Okay. What is? What does a rich or wealthy black, black person entrepreneur have in common with or not or uh, with a white guy from Ashlagam Maison? Just nothing. Okay. The answer or is nothing. South side. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Where, and right? if and also like a lot of people people can be born into privilege regardless of their race. I mean, the children of LeBron James are they born into disadvantage? LeBron James what? was, but his kids are going to be born into what enormous privilege, well, right? What we need to assess. What we need to assess. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. No. Being born into privilege. I mean, that's I should. You know that's okay, right? It gives you, know? you some privileges, and right. sometimes you have access to yeah. to to people where you wouldn't have access if you were, you know, different yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But what you have to stop doing is constantly bring it back to race. Yeah. It's it's yeah, all totally about okay. Agree. Where yeah. do you come from? Where are you? What's the look at the stats? Okay, we all agree. We all agree that, for example, in Montreal North, Montreal North, there's the unemployment is higher, yeah. right? What are the group? causes of that is it racism is it because well, racism might be one factor because one there are a lot of black people there and arabs the as well it's right one of the but things. there are many other reasons it's too yeah things. yeah but it's it, and it's crime it, is also higher there and yeah. why is crime higher you can't blame all of that on rape police racism well some of it i mean but, you know it's right it's you know it, it, <laughs> and, and, but but you can you can you have to look on both sides, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, I know someone who, who was working there trying to get information and trying to work on a documentary and really? trying to get yeah. in touch with some but, local yeah. people. About racism or just about I know, generally? I don't know exactly yeah. what it was, yeah. but the community was really hermetic, mm, closed. She couldn't get in. She couldn't know. The, no the Haitian to, Canadian community yeah. there? Yeah. So they were kind of close. She yeah. felt like she was not accepted. She was. Mm. They would not talk to her. Very hard. It was really hard. And to she's get. white, French Canadian. Yes. So this could be almost like a reverse racism. They don't. And, and you could make the case, I mean, because of course the, the left wing view would be, oh, well, they've suffered all this racism in Quebec. So therefore, they're suspicious. And maybe there's something to that. I, I don't it's know. It's maybe that. You it may be uh, the nature of the culture. It may be, it, it might be Many things. Yeah, yeah. But to I, pin I it down yeah. to race all yeah, the time, yeah. and to say that because you're white, you're privileged, and you no, know that's that. that's absurd. As you said, the guy, the the French Canadian poor guy born in Oshelaga Maisonneuve is not born into privilege. He's you know, or woman, right? You the know, son of uh, yeah, what know. was the, uh, the 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 former? What's the guy? <laughs> One of the generals of the U.S. Army. His son or daughter? You know, was a uh, I think Colin I'm, Powell. Colin Powell. Yeah. I think they're more privileged. Oh, than, absolutely. Uh, yeah. No, and, than me. Yeah, right? and you could find you could find people. I mean, it's there's one thing just to close the the loop on mm -hmm. the um, on the Haitian thing. I do have some familiarity with Haitian people through at least how they interact through. Because my wife is Dominican, so I, I I've sort of observed and Haitian people. They they you want to talk about a, a group of people that's very. Um, suspicious mm -hmm. of outsiders that they are one that is really and 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 you could make an argument that haiti has had all sorts of interventions with i mean that's actually true i mean you know and then why have the french gone and intervened and in, after the revolution why have the americans invaded well maybe because the country's a basket case that's one possible explanation right now mm -hmm. i mean imagine living it's in the dominican republic that. where your place is kind of poor and messed up and you've got this country next door to you where things are just there's no government. chaos yeah exactly it's just a completely you know yes. and so that yeah one of the things that i think that i think many what i've heard from many haitian people when i talk to them first of all 
I'm often astonished at how they they, they go in for conspiracy theories. Mm. If you talk to like when I talk to a lot of Haitians and Haitian Canadians, mm. Haitian, these are, you know, many of them just sort of assume that there's a conspiracy. There's people behind the thing, not even racialized, just no, no. there's something going on and things are being controlled and the economy's all being run and blah 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 and everything. And I'm always like trying. To, I'm always sort of trying to reason with them like. Do you have any evidence for that? Can you show me something? Like, I mean, I and if you do, maybe there is. You know, it's they, they, they've never really. It's almost like they haven't really ever even thought about the idea of presenting any evidence. It's ipso facto. True, yeah, well, you, you know, know you'd, have, you'd have to study the. Uh, so just to, to your friend, social, it makes me think yeah. that maybe they were kind of looking at her and they were thinking this sort of you know very um, suspicious viewpoint and yeah, thinking why is she right, doing yeah, this? What's right, her, what's, what's her intention? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and maybe. We, well, we'd right. rather not because we don't know. And it's very not sad. Because it, it's it's it sounds like your your friend was trying to do something interesting. Yes, and she was exposed. Actually. I know about you the know. project, and it was it was a, it was yeah. supposed to do good to the community, but yeah, that's what happened, and yeah, you know, okay. she moved on. So hey, back back to back the, to the music. Back yeah, to the music. You <laughs> were talking about uh, La Traverse. La Traverse, yeah, yeah. What I think he was he was he was talking about and to. Uh, people that were kind of left behind yeah, a little bit, yeah. but it was never it was it was not always taking their side. Sometimes he was making mm. fun of them. You know, this like pauvres ils ont toujours mais oui mais les pauvres ils ont la TV en couleur, right? So les yeah. pauvres les pauvres, and yeah. then the it's end, a good line. It's true, you know, right? If you're that if you're that poor, what are you doing of, buying a color TV, the, right? You know the uh, <laughs> the series Les Bougons. Right? Oh, I love that. Okay, yeah, well, yeah, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what he was singing yeah. way before Le Bougon came. Totally, out. totally. That's, that's a great comparison. Okay. Yeah. So, and and and, and that's just, just to, to to explain what Bougon is, yes, it was, yes, a, it was a family in Tetrovil somewhere in the East End, mm -hmm. and the whole family was a group of people who just go around welfare. living their life on welfare, ripping people off, and their whole mo is just to go and scam the welfare, mm -hmm. scam whatever, get a job and get the money and leave. And remember the one about Medeville? With this, with this kind Medeville, of he would get like these, these like these retarded people and get like twenty five dollars. A piece yeah. per hour or whatever, just like to kind get, of a you know, Robin Hood mentality, but for yeah, themselves. Yeah, well, you see, right. But it's, it speaks to that sense of being, like I think that like just to maybe the Haitians and then maybe some people, working class French Canadians, that there's a sort of sense of being excluded all the time. So why not fuck the system mm -hmm. back, right? It's kind of like there's no reason to even imagine why the system could be good for me. So mm -hmm. I might as well just grab what I can, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. I, maybe Plumet Cavels was also could talking be. about that. Uh, also, you know. Also, yeah. It, it was it was political, but not political. No, it was, it's more it social. Was always, it was social. social. It yeah. was a social discourse. One of the things, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I love about the Bougon thing was one of the most amazing things in the Bougon was um, when the little kid they had. The Asian kid. Uh, yeah, they called him Mao. Adopted. Right? Yeah, they, called him Mao. they found him or something at the port or something in one of the containers and they adopted him. And, and I remember like how, um, you know, uh, they, they bring him into the family and he's there. And then one time the kid goes to school and they're bullying him because yeah. they're racism. Like, yeah. And he goes home with it, you know, the big fat guy, who's his name? Junior, you know, Junior. goes and fucking <laughs> sorts Beats. the guy out, just beats the guy senseless, yeah. you know, you better leave, you know. And then he kisses him. It's so touching. It was so, and it, it made me think like, it, I, it was almost like they were, they were trying to make a statement about race, saying yeah. French Canadians are not. Racist, but you do have to be in the family to yes. some extent, right? You yeah. can't, you can't expect to be treated, you know, respectfully or whatever if you're not going to accept what the family, you know, in some sense. Yeah. And I always thought that was an interesting, yeah. but just a, you know, an, if, an if, allegory. Yeah, you know? and if you think about it, that's that makes sense. I mean, if you come here, why would not 
would you not be interested in knowing about the local yeah. culture, local music? Yeah. You were mentioning, you know, you got into French Canadian music. Yeah. As much as, you know. And, and, and I'm, I'm sort of, ostr I'm going to talk about this in the next mm -hmm. podcast, but I'm often sort of ostracized by, 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 by native-born Anglophones. So, oh, yeah, you're one of these people who came here. You're sold you know, out, yeah, right? yeah, it's something like that. Like, it's very, it's, it's like, I'm going to explain more about this in a future podcast, but it's like I feel sort of excluded by them. And then also because I'm not a French-Canadian and I, and I have a, an accent when I speak and stuff, you know. So I'm not sure where I fit there, but... You know, why wouldn't we be want to be a part of the like to feel invested in the in the, the, the French language? I, I don't I, understand. I, I don't either. You know, <laughs> yeah. but the, if you, if the, when I say we, I mean the Anglophone. Yeah, yeah, you know, I understand. Right? Yeah, the, uh, the and if 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 you, we'll make a parallel with music here. How many? I appreciate your bringing Anglos, it back to music all the time. Well, by the way. That's great. How many, yeah. how many Anglophones listen to French Canadian music? Some do. And how many? Some do. Yeah. French can listen to, Ang listen yeah, to right. English music. It's way more. And it's just that I think yeah. that if you get into the Quebec culture, there's no way around Harmonium, Beau yeah. Damage, and yeah. stuff if you're yeah. a certain age. And there's no way around Louis Jean Cormier and mm. Malajube and all these things. Yeah, there's no way around that. You can't say, "Oh well, Brand Van Three Thousand is a Quebec artist." You know, they but say they, in English, but, right? But they are, though. Aren't they? they are. I mean, they, they are. are. And so is Leonard Cohen, even though he very rarely did sing in French. Sometimes. Yes, but yeah, if you stick but... to that, because you only understand English, right, you're right, 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 English, right. Yeah. you're losing a whole the whole point. The yeah. point is, it's not only that. Yes, it's part of that. Yeah. Although I... it's much more Montreal than Quebec, but it's more than that. It's it's way more than that, you know, yeah. and you have to open up and, and listen to, you know, yeah. do you go to, do you stick to the Centaur Theater or do you go to Théâtre Nouveau Monde? Mm -hmm. Do you, are you interested in, and I don't know, uh, yeah, of course now Poutine is a Canadian delicacy. It's yeah, not that, just a Quebec delicacy. Well, well French Canadian. Talk about the appropriation. Yeah, yeah. No, totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, what's interesting is that basically the entire Canadian identity after the 1960s has based on f French being important. Now, now that was before, before the 1960s, it was sort of like shut up and stay in your Quebec ghetto, basically. Right. You know I mean? It was like, and then we got the union Jack and we're British and, you know, and all that. And then, mm -hmm. but since then the, the, the French language, you know, so my uncle in British Columbia, you know, I was visiting once and I, Oh yeah. I was telling him I met this guy who spoke French. The guy, the guy was from Manitoba. He could barely speak French, this guy, you know, but, but he was supposedly a Francophone. So we were talking about French. Bilingual. Yeah. You know, or whatever. And, and I was talking to my uncle and we were talking about the military base and he was like, Oh yeah. Well, there's a Francophone presence all across Canada. It's a big part. And all this. And of course there's, I mean, it's sort of technically true. I mean, you can go to villages in Saskatchewan where people speak French, but the reality is, I mean, New Brunswick is an exception. Okay. If you go to New Brunswick, there's a lot of French culture in many parts in some parts of Ontario but generally speaking it's not much it's, you know it's not and so it's kind of a it is a kind of an appropriation it's sort of like to you know for people in Alberta or BC or whatever oh yeah French is so important it's like it's not that important to their daily lives you know but you know it's, again <laughs> if you if Quebecers French Quebecers listen to French Quebecer music yeah do they know about French music from Ontario Manitoba 
Is there such thing? Oh, there's La Famille Galant. They're all the Galant. They sing oh, in yeah, French. And there's true. probably I've some heard very good music. Ontario, from, right? And there's I have a record from an artist that comes from, uh, I think, uh, Manitoba, but she's a French-Canadian. Gabrielle Roy was a, was a Franco-Manitoba. Yeah, exactly. Well, we yeah, although she was back, of course. Yeah, but, right. but She was born and raised in Manitoba. The, yeah. to, you know, the, the fact that, you, you know, Canada is, is, is not one and does yeah. not... Yeah, assume or or it's a very diverse or, country. Canada, by definition, has a and Anglos diversity. don't necessarily yeah. listen to French music, but French Quebecers don't listen to French Canadian music from outside, <laughs> right, right. and they're very so. It's very regionalized. And, the music yes. culture in Canada yeah. is very, very uh, exactly. Yeah, that, that's interesting. What you're making that makes me think that, that there was a big movement in the 1990s, I suppose, in the early 2000s of. Um, Nova Scotian folk music that mm. became very popular around Canada, in, in, uh, in, at least in English. Uh, you know, there was a whole musical tradition in Cape Breton that nobody had known about. I mean, it was just there all that time, people playing violins and stuff, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, okay. Well, listen, um, yeah, that's a. I, I really appreciate the last, you know, 15 minutes or so we've been um, basically doing because I wanted to I wanted to close with a sort of a preamble mm -hmm. of the next time we talk which is going to be in French and we're going to talk about yeah. identity and Quebec and stuff so we've kind of done that so anyone listening uh, you know that's a sort of an introduction mm -hmm. um, I want to thank you for taking the time oh, this has pleasure. been it was, uh, yeah. it was very pleasant <laughs> yeah I appreciate that <laughs> and and I really appreciate your just your openness and and your uh, you know, your knowledge and all that stuff and, and your ability to describe things is really cool. So, well, I think yeah. it's, it comes from, a, first of all, a passion of music, but also a passion of, of the, the place I live in, you mm -hmm. know, and with all its yeah. contradictions. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, and not not being a victim of, of polarization as well. You know, I, I, I don't like that. I oh, like, boy. I like it's terrible. as, as open as I can be with music, I can be as open with ideas. And of mm. course it stops when there's a lack of respect or lack of whatever, but you got to have a limit somewhere. When, when, yeah. when someone is, I mean, you know, you have to say, okay, this person, like at some point you have to say this person, I'm not going to talk to that person because they are. Yeah, but it, X, it, right? It'll never you know, be if you think like, like, like this, the KKK you're... guy who thinks that all black people are animals or whatever. Right. I'm not going to have that guy on my podcast, even if he does have something oh. interesting to say about something else. <laughs> right. You know, so, but, but beyond that, you know, beyond extremes, you know, how extreme does a person have to be before you cut them off is not an easy question. No, to, it's not an easy question. You know, and that's also so, a question of your own values and where yeah. you onto you know what's where are you willing to go and as you know how far are you willing to go yeah, <laughs> in, yeah. In, in a certain direction but you know what what I'm trying to do with this podcast is really I have this I'm trying to get to the truth I mean that's one of my tagline is all about trying to get to truth and you never really get there. You don't actually arrive. Okay, I have discovered the truth. But if you have, if you open things up like you've been doing about music, maybe you're going to discover something new and oh, yeah. find, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you, you discover a lot through music. You discover a lot of about history as well. If you dig, mm, if yeah. you just casually listen to a record, that's one thing. But if you listen to a record and then afterwards you go on the internet and you start, find or out. you pick up a book and yeah. you say, okay, okay, this is... A, his, this is the story of the guy, but then there's another book that tells you know another story. You know, you, you, no you're, you're inspiring in book, me to you're learn. Still... You're inspiring me to learn about Plumier Traverse and how he yeah. grew up, you know, and all that. Just where he got those stories from, and um, and just I, I love the way that he describes this sort of painful existence. But there's 
also a kind of a beauty to a lot of his the lyrical stuff and just oh, yeah. the like I, I what i love about him and, and i think about a lot of great artists is to describe something painful but also you can see the beauty mm-hmm. in that i mean you know but there's something the how irish, do you do that irish yeah. folk music i mean the, if yeah. the irish were uh, you know they, a, they are a people who suffered in poverty lot, and oppression from the british the music yeah very strong uh, the, the, yeah. the most folkloric to a band like the pose it's always festive. There's, yeah, that's there's, right. That's there's right. sadness in it, but it's not completely sad. And what yeah. you said about Kim Traverse and also about some of the folk artists here is the same thing. The, the stories can be sad, but there's always but something. There's a beauty of the or something. And maybe that's that's hope. Yeah. Well, it's, first of all, you, you, the, the comparison with Ireland, I think, is is, is very apt because I think Ireland uh, as as a society probably shares more in common with Quebec than even France does in many yep. respects. Uh, you know, just the, the uh, you know, the, the all that kind of repression of, uh, the, the, you know, the, the British, the British yeah, did a job on them. Wow. Very bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, much, much, um, you know, yeah, yeah. There's the British oppression. There, there's just also the general, the poverty of the population, mm-hmm. you know, the people, and the large families, Catholicism being yes. a very deep, you know, which separates Ireland from Scotland. Scotland mm-hmm. is a very mm-hmm. different, um, even though it was also very poor and yes. oppressed by the British as well, but they have a different religious tradition, yes. you know. Yeah. Um, okay. So, see, it's, it opens up a lot of, of Yeah. Well, we've done uh, ouverture, right? You know, yeah. at the end of an essay, you're supposed you know, to out, do Out of music, you can you'd open up many doors, <laughs> and then you can have as many podcasts as you That's want. That's right. Based on any, so, <laughs> thanks again, covered. and uh, I'm really looking forward to the next one. Okay. All right. Great. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thank you for listening to today's guest on the Mega Blast Podcast. I've been your host, Jason McDonald. This podcast is brought to you by Arts and Opinion, an online journal, which is also available in the permanent archives of Canada. Visit us online at artsandopinion.com. 